Kevin is a, a great human being. We've become closest of friends, which is, you know, of all of the things that have come out of this, that's the best part yeah. is I have a new, a new best buddy and uh, we make this thing together that we love, that we feel strongly about. And the audience has responded to it and uh, it just, it couldn't be a, it couldn't be a better experience. And welcome to another episode of Turtle Flakes. I am your lowly co-host Rob, and joining with me as always is my man, my partner in Ninja Turtle Crime, Mr. Josh O'Rourke. Hi. Hey. Hi, hey, hey, hey. Yeah, don't Sorry, do that. I that again. Don't do that. Oh, man. Well, host, how have you been doing lately? Oh, not bad. Just you know, hanging out, doing a thing. Yeah, being a dad. Doing, doing nothing. Doing... Whatever. I say you're busy, man. With five youngins running around, I say you're pretty busy. Well, you know, I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, you just put an iPad in front of them. They're good for the rest of the day. <laughs> you, put a good, you put Minecraft in front of them, I don't even have to worry about feeding them until Nicole gets off work. <laughs> oh, we're going to get the emails on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well. Hey. parenting. Oh, yeah, well, I'll tell you. Um, I was just telling Josh right before we recorded, it was. it's back to school this week, at least for the teachers. And, man, I swear I've got to get back into teaching shape as far as actually working it was my wife and i had such a great summer you know with the family it, it was hard it's so hard to get back but you know you gotta do what you gotta do we're back and the kids come back next thursday so uh yeah things are about in full swing again but that's okay because this month you know yeah it's back to school month for us but also this month is super exciting because um the drawing blood volume 2 kickstarter started on august 1st and as I last checked, it was over 30,000 in its, what, stretch goals? Is that right, Josh? Yeah, it was 31,000 as of last night. They have a $75,000 goal. Uh, yeah, so they're close to halfway there. They're almost halfway there with, you know, like 27 days left in the Kickstarter. So I think they'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I mean they, that is a great pace, obviously. And I know with Kickstarters, you know, a lot of people jump on board right at the beginning. But, it know, is front loaded. Yeah. Yes, but you know, I I think with all the support, all the shares, and and just backers telling other people, I do think this this project will be uh, successfully funded. Uh, Lord willing, I, yeah. I hope so. Um, did you back it? Oh yeah, yeah, I backed it like hours after you did. I think because I think yeah. when you had shared it, I finally pulled it off because I had a break at work and I backed it. Yeah, which one did you back? What what uh, rewards you get? I got the um, the twenty five dollar one. The um, I think it was the early bird trade release. Okay. Is, is that right? I think that's that was one. I think so, yeah. Yeah, the, with the Ben Bishop cover on it. So. Yeah. What'd you get? I did the $80 one so I could oh. get the Yeah, I did I did uh the $80 one so I could get the Ben Bishop cover one. I was going to get the Mattias Santaluco one for 50. Oh, wow. 
but I did the $80 one so I could get the the Ben Bishop cover and so I could get the two Ronan Ragdoll t-shirts that come with it. Oh man, that's nice. Yeah, so one of them one of them is the logo for the radically rearranged Ronan Ragdoll's uh the movie poster. So oh, that's awesome. It's, it's the uh the logo for them. And then the next and then the other one is um it's the cover to what would have been the first issue of the Radically Rearranged Ronin Ragdoll's Adventures comics by Kidoscope. Oh, so wow. it's basically the Archie Comics Ninja Turtles version of the Ronin Ragdolls. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty cool. And you know, I mean, I've got the money for it and you don't have to pay you, they don't actually take your money until the end of the month, so I'm yeah. set. So, long as I long as I don't get anything this month, where it's just like, "Hey, don't buy anything." I already told Ben, I was like, hey, man, I did this thing. Can't wait. You know, I've, <laughs> I've never been ex- more excited to skip a year in my life so I could see what happens to Bookman next. Wouldn't I feel like if I was like, oh, I only had $79. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, dude, when you get those shirts, man, you'll have to you'll have to model them off uh, on our Turtle Flakes group page. Yeah, they better fit, man. We were just talking about working out and exercise and eating stuff and eating right. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to feel like I'm going to, there's basically no win here. I either won't have the money or I'm going to get fat. One of those. (laughs) Whatever. What's going to happen is you're going to get so shredded when you actually go to flex your arm, the shirt explodes. Oh yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. 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 Be like in that movie Kung Pao when he just like flexes in his shirt. I love that movie. Yeah. But yeah. um, So. Gosh, we're horrible hosts here because we completely forgot to mention that the first part of the episode, we're going to talk about some listener feedback. We, we got a ton this week, and we thank you all so much for reaching out and uh, emailing us, and we got a couple of phone calls. So we're going to get to a couple of those today, and then we'll save some for the next episode. And then also the second half of this episode is going to be an interview with David Avalone, the writer of Drawing Blood, or, or one of the writers of Drawing Blood. And I've looked at his his work. He's been in film. He has produced. He has edited. He has acted. This guy has done it all. And he's writing for, I think, Dynamite Comics. Yes. And, oh, my goodness, this guy has been everywhere. And I'm so excited to meet him because, one, he, he's obviously a very talented guy. And, two, from what I've heard from several other podcasts, he's, like, one of the nicest guys in the world. And And that's just – once again – you know, th- these guys are like the, the nicest, most or down-to-earth people. You know, we've talked to Ben. We've talked to Kevin. Now we're going to get to talk to David. And yeah. um, it's just – it's awesome to see them self-publish like this. And it, I don't know. It just gives me hope for the future. You know, you be good to people. You, you work your butt off. And who knows what could happen. But, yeah, so the second half of the episode, we're going to be talking to David. And I guess I can go ahead and announce this on the show too. Next week – we're going to be talking to Ben Bishop, the artist of Drawing Blood. Awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited because, you know, I say all that to say this. There's not going to be a whole lot of Turtles content in the next couple of episodes, but we're going to try to do as much as we can with that. But in the same time, we also want to help our friends in this kind of time-sensitive uh, way. There's only one month. They only have one shot at this, so we want to help every way we can. And then I promise you we'll have a lot more Turtles content coming your way after the Kickstarter is finished. But yeah. but in a weird way, like we talked about in the last episode, there's a lot of connections between, the, obviously, the Ragdolls and the Turtles and 
of course, Kevin Eastman and Shane Bookman. So, But before we get into the interview, I did want to give a couple of shout-outs, a couple slices of pizza to some friends of the show. First of all, we are finally on Instagram, and I want to thank all of our followers who, who listen to the show that have followed us on Instagram. We're almost up to 100-some followers already, and we just started about a week ago. That's already more listeners than I thought we had. <laughs> so, And probably most of those aren't listeners anyway. But if you are listening and you did follow us on Instagram, thank you. We're, ha- we're having a blast doing that. Um, as a matter of fact, I love Instagram because I found a ton of Ninja Turtle sites and, and artists um, through it. And one of them that really stood out to me was Ninja Toitles. That's T-O-I-T-L-E-S. I actually checked out their website, ninjatoitles.com, and they have a ton of like retro video game art, uh, retro turtles pins, and things like that. Um, so I, go check them out. Um, they are on Instagram. They're on Twitter. And, of course, their main website has a ton of stuff for sale. Um, another artist that I found on Instagram was Toka Oroku. He's actually one of our friends on Twitter. But his Instagram page, I checked it out, and I saw a lot more of his artwork. He does a lot of skateboarding board designs and things like that and of course he goes to a ton of different cons and i think he sells some of his artwork as well so um if you want to check him out that's t-o-k-k-a-o-r-o-k-u toka oroku only two more though 8-bit zombie i kind of stumbled upon these guys they are an awesome awesome store and that's the number eight b-i-t zombie.com and they they sell a lot of Team NT artwork, Halloween and pop culture figures from the 80s, skate designs. There's a custom skateboarding zombie green monster guy named Thrasher. He sells figures of that. It's really cool. He designs a lot of his own artwork, and I've been hooked on what I've seen, and I've been following him on our, our Turtle Flakes Instagram account. And that leads me to the last one I wanted to say, and that is that we are proud partners of It Came From The 80s Magazine. This kind of happened by accident or well, I had nothing to do with it. O'Neill, the chief editor of the magazine, just randomly reached out to us on Twitter and said, hey, would you guys like to advertise in our magazine? And would you ever want to like write for our magazine? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and I, I looked at the PDF of the first issue, which should be debuting this month in, in August. It looks incredible. It, it was even better than I expected it to look with the design, the quality of the articles that I've seen. Um, and it's going to be in print, and it's all about 80s horror movies. So that's kind of right in your wheelhouse, Josh. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I've read an interview from Night of the Comet, which I've never actually seen. I need to see that movie. And then I read another interview about Don Post Productions, the, the Halloween mask um, uh, factory, I guess, or company that uh, was really popular in the 80s and, and 70s. Uh, and I've read a couple other articles about the Inhumanoids and things like that. So we'll send you guys links to all these things, and we'll be sure to promote It Came From the 80s Magazine from pretty much this moment on, uh, because I'm, I'm really, really shocked at how awesome it is and humbled that he would even reach out to us. And I'm going to be writing an issue or an article in issue two, so stay tuned for that. It's a quarterly magazine, and the first issue will release this month. So stay tuned for that. You can Google search them, and you'll find a ton of different links for them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. So, again, that's It Came From The 80s. 
And as far as podcasts go, the only one I've gotten to listen to this week was Booyaka Show. And I want to thank Zach, the host there, for sending me a 35th anniversary pin and some sweet Donatello figures. Or um, uh, Donatello cards, I should say. And one of them was the uh, Turtles 3 movie Donatello. And immediately I thought, you were expecting maybe the Adams Family? Uh, and, you know, he recorded the IDW Road to Issue 100 panel on his show. And I'm not going to listen to that one yet, but I heard their last panel. Uh, that he recorded, and it was really fascinating stuff from Ciro Nielli, from Kevin Eastman, and the producers of Rise of the TMNT. I can't remember their names offhand. But, yeah, I just want to give him a big slice and TMNT Minute and all the other wonderful uh, Turtles podcasts out there. Keep up the great work, and cowabunga dudes. Now, finally, we can get into some feedback here. So I will start off with Derek Dowdy's collection. Um, so he was one of the ones that was actually pro Jenica last week. Yeah, uh, you know, really liked um, that they were what they were doing. And, and then he thought about it. No, <laughs> no, it's definitely, definitely still him. But uh, so, anyways, this is about his collection. He says, "Hey guys, Rob, you said feel free to send in pics of my collection. So here it is. Most of the vintage stuff I have is from when I was a kid, but I'm mostly an inbox type of collector. Oh, there you go, Josh. Yeah, see, yeah, okay. definitely a Donny guy. Also, so there's another, there's another Donny fan." And uh, I see he's got some 2003 figures. He's got the the history of the turtles, Leonardo figures, the whole giant box set that I always kind of wanted. He's got the movie NECA figures, which I kind of wanted too. In one of his pictures, it looks like he collects Playstations too. What really? I missed that one. Yeah, look at the look at the the big wide shot with the fireplace in it, and on the right, there is like all the Playstations. There, he's got PS one, two, three, and four in box. What? Yeah. Oh, I see that. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I love that uh, Raphael pillow and the the TV tray. So, so big slice of pizza to you, man. You got a good looking yeah. collection there. Very neat. So yeah, the cool stuff. Yeah, this is man. I hope you've got more than just the one wall. Like you're allowed to have more than just the one wall because like I know what running out of wall space feels like. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. The wall is closing in. All right. So I, Corey Neighbors he sent us an email two or three days ago. Hey guys, Corey here. I'm going to preface this now that I finished typing out my thoughts. Uh, this is a long one, and I apologize. I just want to say I really get a kick out of you guys sharing the listener feedback you receive from the fans. So here's some more for you. I'm responding to the question you posed for me about how I could feel or how I would feel if April was made into the fifth turtle instead of Jenica, since I'm so lukewarm about Jenica as a character. I wanted to clarify that I don't have a problem with Jenny, if that's what she's going to be called, being a fifth turtle. She's the most logical choice, as there aren't really any characters that would be better in that role, as Angel already has an identity in Nobody, ironically. Uh, and Karai, oh, that was good. And Karai uh, is definitely antagonistic toward the, uh, the heroes. As I'm writing this book, I figured out what my problem with Jenica is. She's a blank slate. She's the most logical choice because she doesn't really have any identity outside of the doting caretaker of the orphans that the Foot Clan are stuck with, and the girlfriend of Casey Jones, in my opinion. Now, to be fair, I have not read past the most recent trade and the four macro series as I decided years ago to collect the IDW series in trade as they're easier to lend out. I've been trying to get friends of mine to read the series so trade paperbacks work well for that purpose. Ah, good for you, man. And I can display them on the shelf instead of stuffing them into a long box. Mm -hmm. I do own up to issue 94 in single issues, but haven't taken the time to read them yet. 
So maybe if Jenica has some drastic characterization in those issues, I might change my tune. But for the 35-plus issues that I've read since she was introduced, she's just not as compelling of a character, in my opinion. True, she did make a heel, a heel turn after trying to kill Splinter and him, sparing her life, but to me she just seems like she's being manipulated and used as someone for Splinter or Leo or Casey to talk to, since if they talked to themselves for pages at a time, um, they would... Oh, oh, they would have come across insane. I will make an effort to read through issue 94, since I've been unable to secure a copy of 95, the cover price. I know, that's wild. Yeah. And see if my opinion changes, and then I'll get back to you guys uh, with another long, rambling email once I've done so. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Hey, thank you so much for the email, Corey, and, and yeah. um, you definitely make some valid points. So, Josh, what do you think, man? Well, I mean, like, her talking to other characters is what every character does, you know? Mm-hmm. Just saying that, like, Casey would have seemed insane if he was talking to himself. Well, yeah, that's every character. That's every story that's ever been written. Characters talk to each other, you know? So, like, I mean, I don't think she was really a blank slate. It was like, yeah, she was a bad guy, then did a face turn, eventually, because she was forced to guard Splinter as, like, a pseudo-punishment. And then she became a mother figure and a sisterly kind of character towards Leonardo and Michelangelo specifically. But really her characterization, the amount of characterization that was done with her is the same amount that had been done with characters like old Hob or slash or Ray filet or, you know, just Mondo gecko. I mean, like you, how much do we know about Mondo gecko before he was mutated? We don't know anything about him. Mm-hmm. We just know that, hey, his name is Mondo now. He was a skateboarder. He's a skateboarder now still, and he's a gecko. That's cool. Yeah. And But, like, with Jenica, we got to see a little bit, but we got, like, spoon-fed, not spoon-fed, but we got, like, breadcrumbs of her history and, like, how much of her involvement in the Foot Clan there was and who she was before the Foot Clan. And to be fair, there was a lot of that that was given to us really quickly, very recently. And before that, she did seem like a bit of a just a one-dimensional doting assassin kind of character but the fact that we got characterization about her very quickly doesn't change the fact that we got characterization for her yeah so like she's not a blank slate it's there but it was just given to us really quickly over the last six months Mm -hmm. you know and so her being mutated um now is just another evolution of that, not evolution, but just it's another hurdle for this character to to go to go over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, I think I might have mentioned on the last episode. I I do like. I mean, I thought it was um, satisfying, kind of seeing her turn completely around. And I, I don't get the sense. I don't get the sense that Splinter's using her or manipulating her in that way. But you know, everyone's different. Just the way I read the book, I think Splinter was giving her another chance not to manipulate her, but to kind of give her another chance as in, I see some strong qualities in you. I'd I'd like to work very closely with you. As a matter of fact, trust you uh, enough to watch the foot clan, be my, my right hand woman with the sole purpose of getting her to realize she still has a lot of value and she can still do a lot of good. Yeah. Splinter didn't always get things right in this series. He's made some questionable decisions, but you know, you mentioned you hadn't read some of the macros. 
was the Michelangelo one. That was a macro, right? Yeah, that's a really good one, too. Yeah, yeah. I think that revealed a lot about Jenica's character because she was taking care of the orphans then. It Was that the same one where Splinter – no, that was the Christmas issue where Splinter really missed the turtles. Where he has a change of heart, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Splinter's motives – he might have lost sight of what was important, important for a while. But I think overall, just with a few subtle details in the story, we see that he's still, he's still Splinter. He still has yeah. a good heart. He has to get cutthroat sometimes, but deep down he's trying his best to do what he thinks is right. But then again, I guess that's what villains do too, so I guess I'm just rambling. But you know. yeah, Well, I mean, th- that's also like the way this book goes, where it's like people do the status quo for a good long while, and then suddenly it's kind of realistic in the fact that when change happens, it doesn't care what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Change just happens. And sometimes it's super quick, just like what happened with Jenica, where it was like, it was in like the heat of the moment. Leonardo has to give her a blood transfusion. She wakes up as a turtle. What do we do now? And I like that she, you know, issue 96 just, just came, came out. out. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about it today, but like very quickly. I mean, like when she, she takes it all in stride, she's like, holy crap, I have three fingers. You know, what's <laughs> going on right now? And her talking to Casey and yeah, her, she meets, she meets Casey and, uh, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. It's going to pro- I get the feeling it's going to be hard to read, but we don't know yet. But, you know, just like, I really like, I really like so far, everything is looking good. You know, nothing. Yeah. She's responding the way I kind of thought she would, where she's not like, oh, poor pitiful me, but she's still a little bit in shock. So maybe, yeah, maybe it's not a little early. Anything. Yeah, she's, she's not blaming Donatello for doing this to her. Yeah, you know? and, and I like how the turtles are kind of re, reaffirming what I felt about her, is that she's tough. She can handle this. She can get through this. Um, it is definitely heartbreaking to see the way Casey responds, but I can understand why he does. It, well, I wonder how much I wonder how much of that was Casey and how much of that was his dad was there with him. Yeah, good and point. like his dad is kind of pushing him to, hey, we don't have time, let's go. Yeah, I still I still want Deviations Hun to show up. I like him better. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I still don't. I I mean, Hun is fine. You know, Hun is what he is. There's like yeah, better, I know. There was like a better one-off version of him. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I kind of want to see that one again. Yeah, you know, where he's a scumbag, but then he finally makes one right decision. I'm like, yeah. hey, all right, yeah, redemption. And then, Oh, we're back to Dolph. We're back to Jerkface. Yeah. <laughs> well, he does follow up um, the email. This is Corey. He follows up with his email uh, with a voicemail. So whenever you're ready, Josh, we'll pull that up real quick. And, yep. and then right after that, we'll talk to David. Hi, this is Judith Hope as the original April O'Neil from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm so glad you called. Leave a message after the beep. And if we're not beating up fat guys and trying to like whip the foot clan we will return your call just as soon as we can thanks hey turtle flakes this is uh cory neighbors uh i left you an email answering a question you guys asked me about you know how i would feel if april was the fifth turtle instead of jenica because i'm kind of lukewarm about the whole jenica situation i sent you an email and i didn't even answer the question i went off on a tangent so here's my answer um Pre-issue 50, I would be perfectly fine with April being made into the fifth turtle. It just seems like after that, after the Casey and April series, she kind of hasn't really been given anything to do. 
um, as far as I can remember. So it just seems like if her only purpose is being made into the fifth turtle, you know, and then being like grandfathered into having a purpose, having, you know, something to do, I wouldn't be okay with that. But like I said, pre issue 50, you know, she was, I don't know, she was kind of helping more, it seems, it, she, she just had more going on. So, you know, it's all in context. April being the fifth turtle potentially could work. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But, you know, the way it is now, it just doesn't seem like it would work. But, I mean, who knows? You know, we may see that someday. So I just wanted to, you know, give you even more feedback than I have been. So uh, <laughs> keep up the good work there. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, man. And you keep that feedback coming for sure. And I agree with you, Corey, as far as April goes. And I think it's just April's a, character is a victim of there is just – there's so many characters. Yeah. There's so much going on right now that I, I don't know what you do with her. I don't think there's only so many characters that you can display without one character getting kind of neglected a little bit. You you can't have everyone have their their moment in the sun at all times. You just can't. And and I know you know that, Corey. But I agree that April's kind of been a little in in the background lately. And she, I guess that's just how the stories work right now. We all know that she's been doing something. And really it was... Even though it wasn't in the main series, it was there if you read Universe for a little bit. Like, you knew she was at TCRI. Okay, mm-hmm. now she's working on Baxter's mayoral campaign. Um, and in issue 95, or 90, 95 and 96, she came on to something really big that's going on with Baxter right now. So, like, yeah, with with April could have been the fifth turtle. That could have been fine. You know, that would, I mean, it all depends on, like, I mean, Kevin Eastman told us one day. Where it was just like, it just, the story has to be right. As long as that story is good, you could turn Splinter into a turtle and you could find a way to make it work. You know, I mean, like, right. you could, I mean, story, story has no limits. Storytelling has limits. There's a way to make a story, a good story, great, and there's a way to make a good story terrible. You know, I mean, we'll find sure. out where it goes. So, I mean, yeah, April could have been a turtle and it would have been okay. You know, April could have been a turtle, and it might have been terrible. We don't know. You know, yeah. but um, let's see what's going on now. You know, I mean, like after issue 100, I think the status quo is going to be much different, and we'll see how many people are left standing. You know what? Right. What my big fear is, though, with the way the story is going, because City at War, right, and everything's just kind of just like everyone's talking about stuff that's happening. I really hope that like it's not talking for the next two issues, and then in issue 100, all of a sudden, every people are dying on every other panel to make room for stuff that's going to happen after issue 100. And then my my big fear with issue 100 is there's like this huge battle, and like every other page is a major character death, and on the last page, like it's whoever the turtles are fighting because you know they're going to survive. And let's say <laughs> let's say Karai dies at the end of issue 100, and like the last page is uh, Leonardo, like he has like Karai dead at his feet, and he's like, "Well, what do we do now?" And then it's just like, "Okay, issue 101, we finally get to find out." You know, like nothing, like there was no, there was nothing but build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, and then there was like just a couple of pages of what is supposed to be payoff, and there's no real payoff. You know, that, that's my fear. Like, with the way they're pumping up issue 100, that's a huge risk, I think. It's a risk yeah. of it happening. Where, that's true. Where, like, they've been talking about issue 100 for, like, four months now. And, which they should, which I would have. Yeah, sure. Since mm-hmm. since issue 90, we've been hearing about, okay, wait till the end of this year. I mean, November is issue 100, man. It's going to be crazy, right? 
we don't know. It might not be. It might be a dud. Yeah. You know, now is, I mean, they've, they're doing a lot of buildup and a lot of the inconsequential characters are being killed off or being moved to the sideline. Right. You know, it's like, okay, well, what we want to see is the turtles take on Karai and her dudes. And we want to see this big war happen. And I know we're supposed to be patient and I am being, and I am patient, but like, I just hope it's not a dud. I'm really afraid of it being a dud now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I, and I think that's just human nature. It's like, we're, we're used to building things up in our head and then mm-hmm. things don't go like the way we were hoping they would go. Right. Yeah. And, and you were immediately disappointed. And, and I'm sure there will be some, even no matter how wonderful issue 100 is, there's always going to be some that are like, Oh, way overhyped, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, I'll never think I could have done better, but like, I'm just, I'm just worried now where it's like, yeah, this, we're getting closer <laughs> with like an issue 95 where it's just like, Oh man, what do they do now? And it's just like, Oh, it's just more talking. Okay. I mean, issue 96 was good, but I get, I mean, that's a big deal. You have to deal yes. with that. And like, yes, I, I get it. I get why they kind of slow down the pace a little bit in issue 96. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to be hitting the ground running again in '97. Yeah. I, mean, I think I almost think, like you said, they had to do this with Jenica right now. I, almost like she would—they'd be doing a, her a disservice if they went right into combat, and then we yeah. had to wait a lot longer for her to process everything. Yeah, and I think she—I don't think she's going to process anything until issue 101 when so yeah. Campbell starts. Whereas I think that's going to be a Jenica-centric storyline, where like that's where you're going to get your characterization, and that's where you're going to get like okay. Now these are the ramifications of me being a mutant. Exactly. And that's going to coincide with their Christmas issue. Yeah. Always do. Maybe they won't this year, but they always do a Christmas issue. That's it's true. Issue 50, they've done a Christmas issue. So Christmas aliens again. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that'll be the her and Casey issue. Like where they finally resolve. Okay. Are we going to be together or, or. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, good deal guys. Well, it looks like we're just about in time to talk to David. What do you say? Hosehead? Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are here today with writer, actor, editor, producer, extraordinaire, Mr. <laughs> David Avalone. Hello. Hi. Yay. <laughs> really quickly, is it Avalone or Avalone? Because I really don't want to call you the wrong name all day. It's, I'm sorry. Uh, it's uh, in Italian, it's Avalone, but that's a lot of work. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% fine with Avalone. Uh, Avalone is... I blame Sylvester Stallone for everyone pronouncing my name wrong. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, right. uh, he decided that it was okay to make his nice Italian last name sound Irish. <laughs> everybody everybody just kind of ran with that pronunciation of own yeah. as own. But, uh, yeah. So, real quickly, I've noticed you have quite the striking IMDb page here where it's like, is yeah. it like one it's of your mess. first... When I first signed on to the IMDb, you know, whatever it was, 10, 12 years ago, when yeah. it was back to the mid-90s, I feel like, uh, it's been around for a while, they okay. literally had me as three different people, and I had to contact them and say, no, <laughs> as weird as it is that one person has had this chaotic mess of a career, that's just stuff I did to play the rent, man, that's all me, so... uh wow. They did. They did eventually accept that I was one person, and uh, but yeah, it's uh, I've I've been in the film 
industry, for want of a better word, since 1985. Uh, worked wow. on my first indie, or 86, excuse me, worked on my first indie film while I was still in college in New York. Uh, came out here in 87, out here being Hollywood. And have, you know, just done done whatever came up, uh, writing and directing and acting even, uh, and a lot of editing. Um, I figured out early on that even independent films, no matter how low your budget is, man, you really need an editor. Um, so, uh, so that was an easier job to get. And it's a, it is really where the filmmaking takes place. It's even sort of where the last draft of the script gets written. I have, uh, rewritten a lot of movies from the editing chair, changing things around a great deal. So, you know, it's uh, it was satisfying in that aspect. And, and you then knock out like three of my questions right there. Yeah, that, was... <laughs> that so that's uh, that's what that's what I've been doing in Los Angeles for the last thirty two years and uh, thirty three years in November in October, and uh, wow. started writing comics only about five years ago. And that's one thing I've noticed. You've worked pretty he- heavily with uh, Dynamite Comics with, from everything with. Yes. Most recently, I believe, is Betty Page and then uh, Elvira. But you also did a lot with The Shadow and Doc Savage. You you seem to have a lot of... Uh, you have a particular interest and love for uh, the pulp era kind of superhero or just heroic characters of that era. And I'm a big fan of The Phantom. Is there any chance we can get you to write a <laughs> Phantom comic? <laughs> you know, I, I'm less acquainted with the Phantom than I am with some of the others. Uh, I'm actually one of the few people who liked the, uh, I thought the Billy Zane movie was actually really good. Um, oh, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it just came along at right at the moment, I think after uh, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, where everyone went, Jesus, can we uh, can we stop now? Have we had enough of these things? <laughs> and that was before, long before the current wave of superhero, the Renaissance, yeah. for want of a better word. But yeah, I met, um, I was introduced to uh, Dynamite's. I think currently he's called editor in chief or senior editor, or he's been called all sorts of things. But basically, he's the, been the main editor at Dynamite for a long time. A guy named Joe Ryband, mm-hmm. and we hit it off very well at uh, Comic-Con and talked about movies and politics and books and stuff that we liked. And uh, a a friend of mine at the time had recommended me to him as a writer and uh, sort of sight unseen. He said, tell you what, when I get back to New York, I'll see if I can find something for you to start out on and give it a try. And that was (laughs) Legendary Vampirella, which was, uh, you know, dynamite, it's kind of a brilliant thing they do. They sort of take IP that has been forgotten, nobody cares about, nobody is doing anything with, and they develop interesting things with it. And they let Bill, you know, who's the writer of, creator of Fables, a pretty great comic book writer, and also an illustrator. And he, uh, he had created a interconnected universe that he called Legendary that sort of used all of their characters in a steampunk setting. It okay. was Vamp- yeah, it was Vampirella. It was uh, Red Sonia. with all of the Dynamite characters. It was Green Hornet. It, uh, they even had the six million dollar man in there, which because it was steampunk, he was the six thousand dollar man. Which I thought was, <laughs> I thought that was a very funny joke. 
had Flash Gordon in it, had a lot of stuff, and they asked me to do a Vampirella spinoff series. Uh, and my audition for it was calling up Bill and telling him what I wanted to do with it. And we had a really nice conversation on the phone, and he was kind enough to give me the thumbs up. And uh, honestly, uh, because it's a new form for me, I uh, I didn't want to be like every other who comes to comic books from movies. And God, it's just like movies. This will be easy. Uh, so I read up on it. I read books by famous comic book writers about how it's done. And I had read the Scott McCloud Understanding Comics series previously, so I, I was armed with that. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so I got to say, I was 49 years old at the time, and it is exhilarating to take on a completely new art form at 49 years old and have to learn everything about it and why it works and how it works. And God knows, I'm absolutely still learning about the form and still doing, still, still going, Hmm, I wonder if that works. I wonder, I wonder if I can use this technique that I enjoyed in the past and all that. So it's great though. I, I love it unreservedly and I'm having a ball doing it. So what, Really quickly, what uh, what kind of script would you say is harder to write, a film script or a comic book script? It's, I mean, I would say that a comic book script is easy because it's 20 pages and a film script is 100 <laughs> pages, so there's that. Uh, okay. A comic book script requires a little more thought in the sense of, you know, uh, a comic book script is a little bit more like an animation script where you're telling the artist... I'd like this angle and I'd like this angle. Uh, I try not to be too, there's a whole thing in the collaborative arts where on the one hand, you want to help your collaborator as much as possible. On the other hand, you don't want them to feel like they're just pushing buttons for you. They're, they're adding something. Right. So while a comic book script requires that you say panel one, I want to see this panel two. I want to say this panel three. I want to say this, see this. You know, and uh, Alan Moore famously, his panel descriptions are pages long, right? Because of all the detail he wants in there. For me, it's a question of what's the important detail and what tells the story. And uh, I would say that definitely at this point in my career, I'm lucky to be working with truly great artists, and in the case of Kevin Eastman, legendary artists. And uh, I don't feel like I have to tell them with enormous specificity and I always say if you got a better idea for this for any panel you know do that and we'll talk about it if I didn't you know if I disagree <laughs> uh, if I feel like a story point that needs to be sold isn't particularly visual or visible in the frame but uh so you know yeah the, a comic book script requires more thought about when, when I'm writing a film script i'm like this is going to be a close i'm not like this is going to be a close-up this is going to be a wide shot this is going to also because making films is a very organic you know you go to set you shoot it and sometimes when you get to set what's in the script is nonsense and can't be shot <laughs> either because of a limitation of the location or not a limitation or something you see where you go oh hey that's there's this thing in the room. There's this thing here. Let's use that. Or an actor has a, or anyone has feedback that you can use. There isn't quite that. When I'm writing a, uh, when I'm writing Elvira, 
me, Elvira, and Dave Acosta, the artist, aren't walking on a set, looking around and going, what are the good angles? What do we what do we like in this room? <laughs> hey, how about Elvira stands over by the bookie? Like, there isn't all of that. So in a comic book, you have to say, no, Elvira's by the bookcase. That's, you know. And again, Dave Acosta can go, come back and say, no, she's sitting on the couch. I like her sitting on the couch. And I go, <laughs> sitting, on the couch, sitting on the couch is great. But it's a... And in film, it's the same thing. It's you don't... When I direct, I don't tell an actor what to do before I see what they're going to do. You know, okay. you hire them for their, among other things, their experience and their insight and their talent. And... Uh, you know, to a degree, you're like, well, what do you, what do you think? What do you show? Show me what you think this scene is about and how you think it should be played. And uh, in comic books, you have to nail down that a little bit more in advance. But again, I can write a comic book script. I should probably not say this out loud. Uh, I can get a comic book script done in a week if I have to. And honestly, the sitting at the computer with the hands on the keyboard is a day, a day and a half. A film script, there's I'm not writing those in a week. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's that that's that's taking a little longer than that. Um, well, one thing I find so interesting about that too, especially with, with the comic books, is that there seems like there's a degree of flexibility, or at least I, I don't know if that's a universal thing or if that's just maybe a dynamite thing with, with that particular company. So that kind of leads into a question I was going to ask. Um, based on on what you're telling us, do you feel like it's almost like by giving the artist that freedom, it's almost like a respectful thing to do, or is that kind oh, of abs a... absolutely? I, I can't remember who it was. I remember Neil. It might have been Neil Gaiman. Two things. One thing I definitely remember was Neil. The second one might have been someone else. Where Neil Gaiman said, "You know, the interesting thing about writing comics is everything else you write has multiple audiences. Uh, you write a script; mm. it's going to be read by." studio executives first, your agent, whatever, but down the road, a hundred people are going to be looking at it and interpreting what you meant and coming up with the right prop, the right set, the right performance, whatever. A comic book script, yes, it might be read by your editor or in the case of a license, you know, Cassandra Peterson, Elvira certainly reads all my Elvira scripts. That's awesome. But really, that. it's a letter to an artist. Right. And it's definitely... You know, obviously, I can't draw to save my life, so I have a, I have a an enormous respect for, for that and for the person who's doing it. And the other thing that I think, excuse me, I think it was Neil who said, always ask your artist what they want to draw, uh, even if it has nothing to do with what's going on. Um, and two examples of that: the artist I've worked with the most is uh, who I've mentioned just now, Dave Acosta who did Doc Savage with me, did The Shadow with me, and is now doing, uh, is now doing Elvira with me. Um, the first conversation I ever had with Dave, I was doing a one-shot for Dynamite that was a Doc Savage Altered States comic, which was Dynamite's version of What If. And their What If was, what if Doc Savage was a caveman? What if he was in, what if he, what if he, you know, what if you put him in prehistoric times in some way? <laughs> and uh, I thought about, a, I came up with a pitch for a story. Dynamite accepted it. And as I was working on it, I was like, you know, you could set this in Doc's penthouse in 
the top story of the Empire State Building, and that's one way to do it. And I could send, he had a, Doc Savage also has a thing called the Crime College in upstate New York, <laughs> uh, just sort of out in the woods. And so I wrote David and said, hey, Dave, uh, we're going to be working together on this thing. Would you rather draw Art Deco skyscraper interiors or a forest? <laughs> like, <laughs> which of those two would you rather do on this project? And he actually, to my surprise, said forest. But it makes a certain amount of sense because Art Deco interiors are pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, great, forest. I'll go with it. And I actually think that we have a great working relationship. And I wonder sometimes if it's because I... That was the first, the first thing I said to him was, what do you want to do? Uh, and I let him define that much of the story. Um, so it's, it's always a degree of calculation. And just recently, I'm right, right now in the middle of writing uh, the Betty Page Halloween special for 2019. We did oh, one cool. last, last year. And um, I was kind of kicking around a bunch of ideas for it. And... Um, they didn't have an artist available. Uh, Dynamite hadn't settled on anyone. And I said, hey, you know, I just did Zorro, Swords of Hell uh, for American Mythology Comics with this amazing artist named Roy Martinez. You want to see if Roy is available? And they did what we always do. They asked Roy to draw Betty Page. He did a couple of amazing drawings of Betty Page. And they went, <laughs> okay, great, Roy, you're in. Uh, but since it was a Halloween thing, I wrote Roy... And I said, hey, Roy, what monster do you want to draw? <laughs> you know, like, what do you, what do you, what do you, you know, I, I don't want to do zombies because we just did a zombie comic together. And I don't, you know, I don't have a story for this yet. I'm still working on it. So, you know, what do you think? And he came back with two that he had already sketched out that he liked. And one was a werewolf. And the other, I forget the name. I would have to look it up. But uh, Roy is from the Philippines. And I guess there's a local Philippines-only monster that sounded fascinating. And I will get around to writing about it someday. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, I don't have the time to research that to really do it justice. So let's stick with a werewolf. Um, and he, I just saw page one. And man, he draws a hell of a werewolf, that guy. So, uh, and it's what he wanted to draw. And it's what he wanted. He draws. He can draw a werewolf, and he likes to draw a werewolf. And I was like, great. And I gotta say, honestly, I had a list of things that I might do in the Halloween issue, and by coincidence, fate, whatever, werewolves were absolutely at the top of the list. So I was like, okay, great. You know, we're <laughs> together on that. But that's what I mean. It's that if you allow for that kind of feedback, it's more of a it's more of a collaboration. They have more invested in the process and more invested in the final work. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately think that's, uh, that's the best. And one more, one more thing about the aspect of working with the artist. There's a famously sort of, there's two kinds of scripting in very broad terms for comic books. There's what's called full script, which is what I do 99% of the time. Uh, where you say panel one, panel two, panel three. And then there's something called Marvel style, which I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. But Marvel style gets its name because Stan Lee was writing 300 comic books at a time. Yeah. And half of them were being drawn by Jack Kirby, who's a genius and a storyteller and a writer in his own right. The best. And so instead of handing Jack 
24 pages of script, Stan would hand Jack a page of script saying, so uh, the Fantastic Four, uh, Galactus comes to Earth, and there's a guy on a surfboard, and uh, I don't know, Reed uh, fools him and beats him. <laughs> 24 pages. <laughs> you know? No pressure. Uh, no pressure. 24 pages. Write the greatest comic book magazine ever. And uh, and Jack would lay out 24 pages based on a page of Stan's vague, goofy story ideas. And I say that with all due love and respect for Stan. Man was a machine. Yeah. And then Stan comes along later and, and scripts it and adds dialogue and said, you know, so I've never written in that way. When Kevin and I were working on uh, the radically rearranged Ronan Ragdolls, which is the spinoff comic within the comic of Drawing Blood, which of course we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, the, the greatest compliment I've ever been paid as a comic book writer is when I handed in the outline. Kevin said, I'm going to do layouts on this. Previously, we thought it was just going to be Troy Little drawing the whole comic. That was the plan. Uh, oh, wow. But he wanted to draw it. And I said, well, that will certainly make it feel like 80s Ninja Turtles, which is sort of the feeling that we're after. Yeah. And again, very flattering. But when I sat down to write the script, and I think page might be four or five, there commences a two, three-page fight scene between the cat who are, you know, samurai martial artists and a bunch of hench henchmen called the dogs because cats and dogs, it's the cartoon. <laughs> it's the cartoon hierarchy. I'm working on the script and I call up Kevin and I'd say, hey, you know, I'm thinking I might Stan Lee it up for three or four pages here because I feel a little stupid telling the guy who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles what to draw in a funny animal martial arts scene <laughs> that, that <laughs> seems like I shouldn't do that so how about you draw the fight scene of your dreams and I will come up with and you know I would I said to him of course so at the end the dogs are defeated or they've run away and Tezuka follows one of the dogs out and sends Otomo and Miyazaki home so that's where we're going that's what has to happen by page five, six, whatever it was. And he did it. And he did that. And the final fight scene, basically the last six pages of the comics are also him laying it out and me doing the dialogue and the panel description. You know, me sort of after the fact coming in and saying, okay, this is how the story now works with this being on the page. And I've never done that process before. And it's a great process. Um, I for, love that. Yeah. For something like that, where you know it's not, uh, and, you know, and the analogy to that in filmmaking, which is probably why it came sort of naturally to me, is when you're writing a script to sell it to the studios, you describe action sequences in great detail. That's not really how action movies get made though how action movies really get made is i think i saw a james bond script once that literally said spectacular ski chase and then had six blank pages and then it was like <laughs> the bottom of the hill bond takes off his skis and <laughs> because what happens is there's a there's a guy for that 
there's a action unit director, there's the stunt coordinator, there's the car guy, there's the gun guy, there's the stuntmen, and there's the director, and they find the mountain that James Bond is going to ski down, and they spend a week walking all over it going, we could do a gag here, we could do a gag like this here, we could do this here. And that's how action sequences are made. It's not like no one wrote a, no one scripted. It's different in movies that are all big effects movies where everything is going to happen on a soundstage anyway. But when you're out in the real world and it's a car chase and you're going down this street and this street and this street, somebody location scouts that and some stunner ranger says, well, I can do a great thing. I figured out this great thing I can do. And the director goes, wow, that's awesome. And then somebody else shoots it. Uh, I remember when I saw Charlie's Angels, which has some of the first Charlie's Angels movies, has really great action sequences in it. And it was the movie is the movie is quote unquote directed by Mick G. Famous action movie director. Was rising star at the time. Yeah. I had my doubts watching the scenes and how polished they were and how well they were done and all that. And in the end credits I watched and waited. And it said, second unit director, Vic Armstrong. Vic Armstrong Armstrong directs the action scenes in James Bond movies. Vic Armstrong is a former stuntman who has the distinction of having been Superman and James Bond and Indiana Jones. (laughs) Wow. That guy did an amazing job on the scenes in that movie. (laughs) McGee sat in an edit bay and went, wow, this is fabulous stuff. (laughs) So there's a little bit of that in the Stan Lee Marvel style thing of like, wow, this is fabulous stuff. Let me let me put it together and give it some dialogue and blah, blah, blah. It's a very long winded explanation, but I think it's worth knowing that there's, you know, there there are different ways to do comic books and there are people to this day who have relationships with artists where they do a Marvel style book. Right. Well, I I really appreciate that answer because I am absolutely fascinated with the creative process that goes behind it and how you should talk to your artist or, or communicate with, with your artist because Josh and I, we both love to write and, and I know both of us kind of have similar dreams of one day, breaking into the comic book industry. And these are questions I've always wanted to ask. And we know that a lot of people that listen to our show are also writers. And I think it's so fascinating that there's kind of almost like a code of ethics if you want to really have a strong rapport with the people that you create these comic books with. And it sounds like if giving your artists a lot more freedom, and and like you said, so long as the important thing that you wanted in there is mentioned, Mm -hmm. giving that artist the freedom to draw what they want to draw, you know, using their skill set. Oh, man, I think that that can create an even better book. Everyone's just kind of playing to their strengths. Sure. And, uh, you know, and like I said, you know, there are people like, I I don't know the degree to which Alan Moore, who is, you know, arguably one of the greatest comic book writers of all time, uh, I don't know that he's ever given anyone any freedom to do anything, (laughs) you know, and that's, you know, as we say, that's fine if you're Alan Moore. Yeah, he can get away with that. Uh, you know, and you, and that's and you have that strong a. Uh, but I am absolutely, I am, I am super aware of my uh, that I'm new to this and that I'm still experimenting with the form for me and still learning about it. And I, I, I always say as part of the sort of my origin story in comics, 
when I grew up wanting to be a filmmaker, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker pretty young and I would watch movies as a kid. And I knew as a kid, I was, I was trying to understand editing and photography and acting and directing and trying to real Like I noticed how things worked. I was looking at the works comic books. I have read uncritically my entire life <laughs> when I, I mean, and this is how uncritically I read comic books. When I became a comic book writer, I literally went to my shelves and went, let's, uh, let's start taking apart the stuff we love. And I looked at Watchmen and I went, huh, nine panel grid. Who knew? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like it just, it hadn't struck me. The structure of it adds, well, nine panel grid. Never occurred to me to do a nine panel grid for anything. That seems like a lot of panels on a page. Okay. Good to know. Uh, New Frontier, which is probably my favorite comic in the last 20 years. Uh, huh. Every page is three CinemaScope panels. Three, And again, the, he breaks that the same way Alan Moore breaks his basic structure when he wants to, when he wants to grab you. Uh, you know, uh, Darwin Cook will go for a full-page full pinup of a big moment. But, huh, three panels, okay, cool. And then you look at Dark Knight Returns, and you're like, okay, there are 300 panels on this page. <laughs> That's amazing that Frank wanted to do that to himself. And Chaikin, I noticed that Chaikin, Frank Miller, and Kevin Eastman, who are all guys drawing their own scripts, you're told as a comic book writer, oh, my God, don't ever ask an artist to draw more than five panels on a page, uh, seven maximum. Those three guys who always draw, you know, who when they're drawing, especially in the latter half of their careers, they're only drawing stuff they wrote. They will put as many panels on a page as they feel like and be happy about it. And you go, well, you know, when when you're the whole show, you can break those rules. The, the artist also wants 25 panels on that page. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, I've had artists, the obnoxious thing that people who writers it's the cliche thing that writers coming from movies to comic books say uh you know oh you know there's no budget i can ask an artist to draw 500 starships coming out of hyperspace over a planet full of and you're and the artist wants to strangle you because they actually <laughs> that's, that's a lot of work and and without being an artist you don't know what's a lot of work and what's not a lot of work and my favorite example of that is I drew, I wrote a scene in Twilight Zone, The Shadow, mm -hmm. where three characters were having a conversation on a long staircase. And <laughs> I didn't realize that every step on a staircase requires its own perspective lines. And Dave Acosta sent me his, his blue pencil page for the first <laughs> page of it. With, you know, all of these notations for perspective and lines going off to infinity and whatever. And he said, I want you to remember this page the next time you write a scene this long. It takes place entirely on a staircase. And I was like, okay, that is an excellent thing to remember. No four-page scenes on staircases ever again. Because it doesn't, you know, ultimately, it didn't matter to me. I, I was using it as an excuse to get from one place to another and to have some visual interest in the background. But now I know staircases are oddly a weirdly high amount of work. Got it. <laughs> you know, like, 
nose. <laughs> and some artists hate drawing cars. Some artists love drawing cars. You know what I mean? You just, until right. yeah. you communicate with them and talk about it, you have no idea what it is that they think is awesome to draw and what they think is not off. And sometimes you also, by the way, know that something is horrible to draw, but you need it. Uh, there's a scene in Elvira number, I think it's seven, where it's the the uh, fourth circle of hell. I can't remember. Elvira's in hell, and she gets to the circle of the wrathful, you know, people filled with rage, and it's a traffic jam. <laughs> <laughs> And oh no, a, man! All those lines on those cars. Two, oh yeah. It's a two-page splash showing a traffic jam going off literally into infinity. <laughs> That's a lot of cars, particularly if you're not crazy about drawing cars, which I don't think Dave is crazy about drawing cars. And I even wrote in the script, I was like, "I am so sorry, Dave." <laughs> you know, like, but this is kind oh, of the Dave. best. It's the best joke. It's the best thing that sells the scene, and he. He did it, and it's beautiful in the comic, and he knows it. He, you know, he knows that it was the best creative choice for the scene. He didn't fight me on it. It did lead to a very funny thread on Twitter where he said something about that, and two other people I work with chimed in about difficult things I had made them do. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a traffic jam, not just a coincidence, but there's a traffic jam in issue... Volume two, number one of Drawing Blood. So Ben Bishop was like, "Oh man, he made me draw a traffic jam too." <laughs> and then the letter, the letterer Taylor Esposito was like, "And I totally loved writing honk five thousand times on that page. Oh, no. That was that, that was also great for me." Uh, so you know, but sometimes you got to do the sometimes the hard thing. There's a great book, Akira Kurosawa wrote a uh, memoir, uh, mostly about his childhood. It ends when you're about a year into his filmmaking career. And there's an appendix, which is hilarious, where he basically says, I know you didn't buy this book because you wanted to know about my childhood. Tough luck. <laughs> you know? <laughs> gotcha. Sucks to be you. But uh, seriously, like that's... The but he says, but... You know, grumpy as ever. He's like, but since you bought the book, here's six pages of filmmaking advice. And <laughs> one of these pieces of advice that I always try to remember, and it's fascinating, is always have collaborators on your script and always have a collaborator who has absolutely no idea how hard it is to make a movie. Uh, uh -huh. Because he said, basically, and I, I don't think this was his example, but it's the example I always use. As a human being who's going to have to go out some morning at 5 a.m. and do this, you would never write a scene that you're like, it's a labor rally on the docks at night in a rainstorm. <laughs> like, <laughs> you would look at that in a script and go, oh, can we make that an, a warehouse interior? Can we, <laughs> can we do anything to make that? Well, by the way, you will notice how many movies are shot in warehouse interiors, and it's because. They're sound stages, essentially. Uh, like every low-budget action movie you've ever seen is like, uh, somehow we're in a warehouse again. Yeah, uh, nobody's ever outside in those movies. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're really cheap to rent. Usually, you find a place going out of business anyway. But the point of like never let, oh my god, that's going to be such a pain when we have to do that. 
make you make a bad or lazy creative decision. And of course, like everything else, you can correct for that without having the person who doesn't know how hard things are. Like I said, knowing how hard it would be to do the uh, the warehouse scene, it's possible Dave Acosta would never write a comic book script that has the traffic jam in it. But didn't you know? He didn't say, "Look, I only want to show ten feet of that." He read it in the script and went, "Well, that's only going to really work if it's amazing and huge and stretches off to infinity." And I draw three hundred cars. <laughs> you know, like it yeah. sucks, but. I always, you know, I say, buddy, you know, you're ne- we're never going to get Eisner's uh, drawing the easy stuff. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, there you uh, go. Gotta be, you know, I, I keep challenging you. And he, I will say this he has even, Dave has said to me uh, more than once that I've made him a better artist by making wow. him draw things that he really didn't want to draw, <laughs> hadn't, hadn't thought of drawing. And also, I tend to do. Um, a lot of this drawing blood is pretty much the only thing I've ever written that takes place in 21st century America. Almost everything I've written has been period or sci-fi or whatever. Um, and that's a, that's a lot of work for an artist. You know, yeah. if you're reading a script where someone's on the phone, well, everybody knows what an iPhone looks like. Do you know what a phone looked like in 1952 off the top of your head? Are you sure? Are you sure what you're picturing in your head is correct? You know, and one of the things I do with every artist, with every project, I open a new Pinterest page and overload it with everything I can think of. Actors to be the faces of every character, every every prop, every room that they're in. And there are definitely exceptions where I go, yeah, I don't, I don't care about that. That's not important. Um, but especially on the period stuff. I don't want them to waste a minute going, Ugh, what is what dress should Betty Page be wearing? What does this look like? Mm-hmm. So I always try to make that as easy for them as humanly possible. Well, you know, speaking of the detailed artists, you know, and just that focus on every, every little thing, I, I just went through Turtles 1 for the first time in a while, and I'm sure you've read it before. It, oh. the, I, the IDW... Um, ultimate collection what i find so fascinating is when you read the commentary between kevin and pete they were going to cut one of these full-scale pages and i think the line is you know we we fade into the night or we vanish yeah yeah that one that that, one that that one atmosphere it's a great page yeah it's a great page Mm -hmm. you know and i I, that's almost synonymous with kevin eastman to me you know in in that art style and including all those details so kind of kind of going back a little bit you've you've referenced kevin eastman a lot how did you get to know him, and and where did this whole idea of, you know, the genesis of drawing blood come about? Sure, the genesis of drawing blood is uh, during that period when I was starting up being a comic book writer. I think my first, maybe my first two series had come and gone. Uh, I went to Emerald City Comic Con, which is Seattle. And was hanging out there and meeting people and shaking hands. I think I pitched something to Vertigo there, which they liked, but it never got off the ground. And I had a friend who was doing some organizational stuff for IDW. And she was picking up Kevin at the end of a signing for them and escorting him back to the hotel just sort of to keep him clear of the fans and all that. 
and uh, met up with them, walked over to the hotel bar. We sat down together. I ended up by just sheer happenstance sitting next to Kevin, and we got into a conversation. Uh, and I always, I can, a, a little sidebar on networking, uh, because I think this is the most important thing to tell people who are trying to break into any industry, particularly comic books, but this works for anything, particularly in show business. Networking is not about getting a job. Successful networking is making new friends. When people say, oh, it's all who you know, man. Exactly. It is all who you know. And who you know are your friends. And everybody wants to work with their friends. Absolutely everyone likes to work. They'd rather work with their friends than a stranger. Yeah. It's a really odd. We all feel that way, right? Yep. That's an obvious thing. So when you meet someone, you never, ever approach them as a paycheck because people can smell that on you a thousand miles away. And honestly, as someone who had maybe written 10 comic books in his life, when I'm introduced to Kevin Eastman, the furthest thought from my mind is someday we're going to be business partners. <laughs> yeah, like, like, honestly, could not have been further from my mind. I don't write like nothing I write is like anything Kevin has ever done before. Like it just couldn't have been further from my mind. And so our first conversation to the best of my knowledge was about World War II comics from the 1970s. Cause it's something we both grew up with. We both loved. I think I had just done a caretaker thing through the hero initiative, which is this organization, this charity that takes care of, retired comic book elderly comic book people who sort of need something need help um and there was this legendary basically my favorite comic book artist when i was a kid was named russ heath drew sergeant rock drew all the dc war titles uh an amazing amazing artist if you're not familiar with his work google russ heath and your mind will be blown cinematic amazing compositions amazing storytelling i always say he would have been an he would have been the world's greatest action movie director had he gone in that direction but anyway we started talking about russ heath and uh world war ii comics and that turned into a conversation about our lives and our life histories and turned out we had a lot of friends in common and a lot of experiences in common, even though we have had vastly different lives. As an example, I was a, uh, we almost met twice previously. Huh. I was a PA for a company called Limelight Music Videos or Limelight Productions that did most of the high-end commercials and music videos in the late 80s. The music video department was a bunch of, pretty gross people that I didn't like very much. So I quit right before they went into production on their second feature film, The Teenage Mutant oh, Ninja wow. Turtles. What about that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that was, that was honestly like the people in the music video department had nothing to do with that movie, but the company was making it. So I probably would have met Kevin at some point in 1989. Wow. Um, and then for a while, I was the ghost writer and ghost co-director for a in, um, sort of legendary uh, uh, exploitation film director named Andy Sedaris, who uh, I worked on the second film I made with him, 
he had a fairly new actress in the film who was a penthouse pet of the year at that time named Julie Strain. Oh. And I'd say probably a less than a year after I stopped working with Andy, Julie and Kevin were married. <laughs> oh, and, wow. And, and Kevin uh, ended up working with Andy on some of his films. He published Andy's book, which has pictures of me in it, which is just kind of a funny, because he was heavy metal publishing and heavy metal published, I think it's called Babes, Bullets and Bombs, the Andy Sarah story. <laughs> so, you know, Kevin Eastman published a book with photographs of me in it 15, 20 years before we met. Wow. So uh, going forward from there, I would, you know, Kevin and I became friendly. We had dinner together that night. And then, you know, I would see him at cons. I would see him at, I was working for IDW at the time doing behind the scenes stuff for one owner or as a cameraman and an editor, actually. I'm not doing any comic book stuff for them. We'd see Kevin at their events and, you know, maintain the friendship. And uh, then at San Diego Comic-Con 2016, we were having drinks at the Bayfront Hilton. I actually made him late for, there was a heavy metal panel where they were going to announce that he was passing the torch to Grant Morrison, who was going to take over as the main publisher. And we were sitting, drinking, having a great time. And I said, you don't need to go to that panel. <laughs> <laughs> and he decided not to go to that panel, which was really funny, I thought. Wow. Uh, heavy Metal thought it was less funny. Uh, <laughs> but uh, during that weekend, we he said to me, there's something I've been working on for years. I have a terrible title for it. It's called On the Shoulders of Giants. It's about a comic book creator who has these sort of similar experiences to me, but I really want to include all of the crazy experiences from every comic book creator I've ever known who's told me crazy stories. And uh, I need a writer to come in and work on it with me. And I should say, and this will surprise people who haven't heard it before, it was he was hiring me to write a movie screenplay. And he gave me a bunch of stuff to read. And actually... Uh, one of my favorite parts of the origin story is, you know, now it had started off as a friendship and no networking at all. But when he suggested this to me, I went, wow, I really want to do that. I really want to do that job. And I walked him to a signing from the, our drinks at the IDW thing. And as we were walking to the signing, I was like, if I can fix the title right now, I have got this job nailed. <laughs> and walking along the the bay side, that big wide sidewalk behind the convention center, my mind was racing with like, what's a good title for like a midlife crisis, Fellini's eight and a half, all that jazz kind of thing, but it's about a comic book artist, comic book creator. And I was going through all the things in my head, you know, something that evokes comic books, but also evokes crisis and stress and emotions and I we were literally I remember this vividly we were maybe a hundred feet from the IDW booth coming through the back door at the con and I tapped him on the shoulder and said drawing blood and he went oh man because Kevin's an enthusiast he's like oh man that's, <laughs> that's awesome that's a title uh and that was that was pretty much the beginning of us working together oh uh, I, I love that that is really cool 
And then he and then he gave me a lot of stuff to read about his own life. He gave me the sixty page interview he did for Comics Journal because I didn't know anything about the Tundra publishing story, uh, and I needed to in order because that's a wild story, and it's important to our narrative. So I uh, read all of that, and I called him up and I said, "I don't think this is a movie. I think this is a high quality Netflix AMC adult." TV series. And he went, oh, okay, let's, you know, that's cool. I agree with that. Uh, I think he was coming to that same decision himself. And we, I wrote a pilot script. Um, I wrote a, we wrote a series Bible together. He was very complimentary about it, loved it. We went out with it a little bit in Hollywood. We sort of didn't like the, I don't think we had very good agents the first time around and they sort of undercut us and set us up with the wrong people. And we were frustrated by that. And you know, it, it's sort of a Hollywood cliche now that if you can't sell your script, you try to develop it as a graphic novel. <laughs> and because we have done this successfully, I've had a bunch of comic book, of uh, TV people call me up and say, hey, so how do I do a graphic novel? And and I I always say, you have no idea how much this costs and how much work it is. And... If you want to do that, if you want to make a comic book or a graphic novel out of your screenplay, here's the important thing. Kevin and I did it because we love comic books and we're comic book guys. And if there never was a movie or a TV show, we are thrilled out of our minds by our comic book. We're not like, oh, man, if this doesn't make a TV show, we fail. Not <laughs> exactly. Not 1% of Kevin and I feels that way about Drawing Blood. We love it. We think it's great. We are intensely proud of it. We are proud the fan that Kevin's fan base has embraced it. We are proud to see it in comic book stores this year. We will be proud to see the trade collection of the first volume in Barnes and Noble, you know, sometime later this year. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I mean, that hasn't, you know, we're still working on that, but we, there will be a trade paperback and I'm sure it will get into bookstores because that, that market is actually booming. Bookstores are desperate for graphic novels. But all that, but my point is, and I've said this to any number of screenwriters, if you ain't satisfied with a comic book, if you're creating something to be a thing that you hand studio executives in meetings, stop now, because it ain't worth it. It's, it is too much work. You <laughs> have to love the thing you're making. Uh, it's not a brochure for a TV series. Do not make a brochure for a TV series. It will be an unreadable mess. It's a backbreaking amount of work. Uh, Drawing Blood's first volume, the four issues, two and a half of those issues are my pilot script readjusted. Wow. Which meant cutting a ton of dialogue that I loved, reordering the scenes like the cliffhangers have to fall in completely different spaces than they do in a TV show. You know, uh, I needed to move stuff around, move events around, all that. But two and a half issues in, in the middle of issue three, we are at the end of the pilot script. And it was a really interesting feeling when I wrote the next scene, which is, I think, the Metropolis nightmare scene. I felt so good because, like, ah, oh, now I'm just writing a comic. <laughs> now I can write comic book scenes that work in a comic book instead of adapting cinematic scenes to be comic book scenes. And it was so relaxed. Like, I, I didn't realize how stressful and how difficult the process had been 
to make the the TV show fit in a comic book. But from issue two, three, and then issue four is pure comic book creation. And, you know, if you look at the series Bible, issue four is the plot of episode two or three of the comic book, of the TV show. Pretty much as is. But, like, I hadn't written that yet, so... I was able to just tell the story in the best possible way for a comic book. And the irony that someday I will have to translate issue four of the comic book back into a TV script is funny. <laughs> you know, uh, that's its own set of problems, and I look forward to having those problems. But the long and the short of it is that's the, that's the history of the project. Uh, after we decided we were going to do a comic, and then we found, you know, how are we going to do it? and you know, there are companies made noises about picking it up as a comic before we kickstarted it. But Kevin comes from self-publishing and I come from indie films. The last film I produced was kickstarted and I we were like, let's go to the fans. Let's a, a film is a lot more money than a comic book. Let's uh, let's make some comic. And we went back and forth on that. And luckily, Ben Bishop, who's the artist, the main artist on Drawing Blood. Ben is like his entire career is pretty much Kickstarter. He's kickstarted almost all of his graphic novels, a lot of the stuff he's worked on, and he's great on it. Mm -hmm. And if it was just the two of us middle-aged guys doing it, I don't know that it would have been as successful. <laughs> but yeah, when he showed me Ben's book, The Aggregate, and I looked through and I was like, "This guy is great. Let's, you know, yeah." <laughs> and then for the hallucinations, I'm sure you guys read it, but. Mm -hmm. uh, Sort of like Fellini's Eight and a Half and all that jazz, there are three kinds of scenes. There's objective reality, which is Ben, finish, you know, layouts and finishes. There's hallucinations, and we got Troy Little. Troy had just done an adaptation, an amazing adaptation of Hunter S. Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in a very sort of cartoony style, and it's hilarious and wonderful and beautiful art. And Kevin showed me that book, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's our guy. And he also did the Rat Ball book mm -hmm. with Kevin. And then uh, Kevin for the flashback. And I love that. Um, I love Because I thought that. that, yeah, I thought that would add a real genuine emotion to that stuff. And frankly, the flashbacks more than, uh, I, I, <laughs> I've never said this before, but it is true. More than anything in the book, the flashbacks that Kevin draws are the closest to his real life. In the sense that the story of Shane Bookman is definitely not autobiography. A million things happen to Shane that never happened to Kevin. Uh, Paul Bookman is his brother, not his buddy who he's sharing a room with, uh, sharing an apartment with. Uh, I always want to make it clear, Paul Bookman is not Peter Laird. Uh, Kevin has, you know, a lot of affection for Peter, and Paul is a more no. complicated character. And I always say, I have a relationship with my sister. That's who Paul Bookman <laughs> is. Oh, no. Uh, more, than anything, more than anything else, Paul Bookman is my sister. Um, well, I'm so glad you brought that up because Josh and I, we talked about this in the last episode. We, we actually yeah. took some time, took some See, notes. I said, I said this was going to happen. I said I was going to, like, explain the book, and a creator was going to say, you got the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, you know, 
like I said, it's not so much that you're wrong in that, yes, Paul Bookman is the co-creator of the Ragdolls and Peter Laird is the co-creator of the... But a, a great example is Frank Forrest. Right. The name is really obviously a riff on Wally Wood. <laughs> Forrest okay. Wood. Oh, yeah. it's, not, it's not subtle. <laughs> but it, Wally Wood gave an interview, one of the big inspirations for this whole series. Wally Wood was one of the greatest, most groundbreaking comic book artists, creators in the in the history of the medium. If you're listening, you're not familiar with Wally Wood, press pause and Google Wally Wood and come back. Well, towards <laughs> the end of his life, Wally gave an interview where he said, if I ever, if I had known what this career was going to work out like, I would have cut my hand off when I was a kid. So I couldn't draw. That is so amazingly dark. Yeah. That's that's Michelangelo saying, I wish I had been born blind so I never had to paint anything or make any <laughs> right. sculpture. Nah. Like, that's crazy. But that's how that guy felt about his career at the end. So, and he did later commit suicide. He didn't commit suicide by cutting off his own hand like Frank Forrest does. But that plot line, that thread, that's Frank Forrest. That's Wallywood. Yeah. Absolutely. Wallywood is, Frank Forrest is also every comic book creator who started back in the day and got screwed over by publishers. Frank Forrest yeah. sold his character, The Night Avenger, for a couple of hundred bucks to a, a publishing company that then ran with it, that wouldn't let him draw it after a certain amount of time. That makes him Jack Kirby. That makes him Siegel and Schuster. That makes him even uh, Bill Finger a little bit, not getting enough yeah. credit. So that. Kevin brought in a really great indie publisher, uh, Dennis Kitchen, to run Tundra with him. And Tundra did not work out financially. Uh, in the comic book, Frank Forrest is an embezzler <laughs> who owes money to gangsters. <laughs> I cannot say this strongly enough. Dennis Kitchen is not an embezzler and owes <laughs> no money. That's, that's plot. That is so that we can have a gunfight in the first six pages to really oh, yeah. wow the audience in a book where they weren't expecting a gunfight. Uh, but let me ask you something about Tundra, sure. though. In in the book, Shane Bookman wants to have the creators, you know, the inmates is, uh, run the asylum. Yeah. Was that kind of the idea behind Tundra, oh, too? Because I, I don't really know that story. Absolutely, and I can say as an aside that there's a conversation I had with Kevin that I recreated in the book word for word between Beastly and Shane. When he was starting to tell me the Tundra story, he said, I wanted it to be like when the Beatles started Apple Records. And I put my hand on <laughs> I put my hand on his arm and said, in nineteen ninety, whatever it was, one, did not one friend of yours say, but Apple Records was a disaster. They lost <laughs> all their money. They barely put out any albums. It didn't their friends took advantage of them and robbed them blind. And that's exactly what happened to Kevin with Tundra. Wow. Kevin lost approximately eight million dollars. Oh, oh my goodness. So when people say why do you have to do a Kickstarter, doesn't he have all that turtles money? <laughs> oh man. Well, no, he does not have all that turtles money. Eight million dollars of it went to comic books and comic book creators, some of whom never turned in their work, some of whom were years late and so this stuff couldn't be released. And Tundra's a whole long story, but 
one one or two more things about Frank Forrest as an example. On top of De- you know, again, Dennis Kitchen is Kevin's business partner to the degree that Frank Forrest is based on Dennis Kitchen. It's that he had a partner. That's it. <laughs> that, that that's all there is to it. I made it. I simplified the fall of Tundra by creating a bad actor. You know what I mean? By creating someone who helped it go down. But there were a million reasons Thunder went down. And the final aspect of his personality, of how he's depicted in the book, uh, I'm friends with Jim Steranko, who's another legendary comic book creator. Yeah. If you look at Frank Forrest on the page of Drawing Blood, that's Jim Steranko. That's Jim's hair. That's Jim's sunglasses. That's Jim's turtleneck. And it's literally just because while we were working on it, Kevin was like, what should Frank Forrest look like? And I was like, oh, Jim Steranko. (laughs) That would would be Jim has such an iconic look. Everyone who's ever been to a convention with Jim remembers seeing him and meeting him. You know, and Jim is, you know, I love Jim, but Jim's a cranky old guy. Like all the old guys are cranky old guys. So he's really easy to plug in. And again, Jim is not suicidal. Jim has a pretty good outlook on life. Uh, Jim created his own publishing empire that didn't go under, you know. So that's an, I tell all that to say you can't say Frank Forrest is Wally Wood. You can't say he's Dennis Kitchen. Mm-hmm. You can't say he's Jim Steranko. You can't say he's any. You can't say he's Jack Kirby, but he's all of them. And, and uh, David, let me ask you something here. And and if you don't feel comfortable answering this, I'll cut this out of the show or, or whatever you need us to do. Um, but going back to the Kevin and Pete thing, I always wanted this. And Josh and I were talking about this actually, you know, off the podcast and stuff. Did they at some point have maybe a, a creative disagreement in, in, in the nineties? I mean, I- was there kind of a hang up for a little while, and then they got over it? I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say that ultimately they went their separate ways. I mean, that's on the, that's on the public record. And I think it's clear that they, if you look at what Kevin's done since the turtles and what, uh, Peters has done since the turtles, they had different visions and ultimate, you know, again, the Beatles are the good analogy also because of creating a billion dollar worldwide brand and then breaking up more or less at the height of its popularity. Yeah. Um, they just, you know, they have different ways of making comic books and those ways did not always gel. And the more the thing became a giant thing and became a thing where they were forced to be toy manufacturers and moguls rather than artists and writers. I think that puts strains on any relationship. And, uh, you know, ultimately that's, you know, that's what causes the breakup. The interpersonal stuff I really can't speak to. I know some of it. I don't know all oh, of it. Sure. But look, I think any that ultimate collection you were looking at, you were talking about, if you pick that up, mm-hmm. Kevin's commentary is always, yeah, Pete and I were, you know, we, we had different ideas for this page. But, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, Pete's ideas were always great, but this time we went with my idea and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and Pete's so talented and this is so great. And then Pete will say, Kevin doesn't know what he's talking about. I think he, he's remembering this wrong. <laughs> and that is and I'm just kind of like, come on, man. That was, like, that was on the very first page. I yeah, noticed that. Right? Yep. It's, on the, it's on the very first page. And I laughed out loud reading it and just was like, 
you can't even for the sake, like, let it go now. (laughs) (laughs) And again, you know, it's just, they have very different personalities. They're, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say that Kevin is an extrovert and Pete's an introvert. Uh, Even for comic books, I would say Pete's an introvert. But when people ask me about Pete versus Paul Bookman, I always say the same thing. I don't know Pete. I've never met him. Uh, And Kevin overall will say positive things about Pete and about working with Pete. And so, you know, I actually stole the idea of them being brothers from one of my favorite novels is a great old book called Lost Horizon, famous for, you know, Shangri-La comes from Lost Horizon. In the book, our main character, our hero, is talked out of is talked into leaving Shangri-La forever by his good friend who's a work colleague. And when Frank Capra made the movie, he made them brothers. Because emotionally, the stakes are so low when it's your buddy from work compared to a family member ghosting you and going their own way. And I had an unpleasant experience right around the time I started working on Drawing Blood. I had been essentially ghosted by my sister, who had been my best friend for 40-some years. So that's what I'm writing about. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I, I think, wow. you know, to the degree that it's autobiography, I don't push this too much because it absolutely, the story came from Kevin, and it's Kevin's story, and I'm, you know, the co-creator but I didn't wake up in the middle of the night with this story to tell. He did, and I'm the guy helping him tell it. That said, in the process of writing anything, it becomes autobiographical. And all of my feelings about my sister are in Paul Bookman, positive and negative. Like all of it, you know, I think it's, as much as Paul is incredibly harsh to him in the limited interactions they have in the first four issues, you don't necessarily know that Paul is wrong about him. You don't necessarily know mm-hmm. that Paul didn't have totally valid reasons. From I'm trying to be as fair to everybody as humanly possible. And as harsh as Paul B- Bookman is, I think the reader gets an idea that maybe Shane deserved it a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. maybe Shane, because we see Shane as a self-destructive guy, as a guy whose life is out of control and all that. And I have been a self-destructive guy whose life is that. So I totally get it. And you can be sad that someone you love no longer wants to be your best friend while also acknowledging, ah, was I was I not easy to be best friends with? Was it difficult? And, you know, if my wife was listening, she would say, your sister's a... But, <laughs> but I think it behooves you as a writer the villain always thinks they're right. You know what I mean? And yeah, I always sure. feel I always feel like when the villains and I'm not saying Paul Bookman is the villain, I'm just using that as a term of art. When the audience member hears the villain make their rationale and goes, "You know, he's crazy and he's wrong, but I kind of see where he's coming from. I kind of see where he's mad about this. I kind of see I can put the math together and go, you know what, with just a little bit of a push in the wrong direction, a person could feel this way. A person could believe this. 
a person could have a rationale like that. When I favorite in in the movie Goldfinger, it's like the to me it's one of the most modern lines of dialogue ever. Bond says something about Goldfinger's plan killing thirty thousand people or sixty thousand people needlessly, and Goldfinger shrugs and says, "American motorists kill that many every year." And there's just something so like, wow. buddy, after the Holocaust, you're going to talk to me about sixty thousand people? <laughs> you know, like you think sixty thousand people is a significant amount of human beings, and that's psychotic. But you can also see from a certain point of view, it's like, yeah, if you don't keep, wrong. if you don't care about human life, why do you care about the number of people that cars kill every year? Oh, I'm ki- I'm as bad as cars. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, I'm not as bad as smoking by even a fraction, but I'm as right. yeah, I'm as I'm as bad as no seatbelts. <laughs> eh, I'm willing to be as bad as no seatbelts to make myself rich and to destroy the Western economy. It's just kind of. It, <laughs> Like I said, I'm not saying those are rational, but you go, wow, that is a thought process. It is a psycho, it is a psycho, crazy, insane thought process, but it is a thought process. At least you know where it came from. Yeah. (laughs) And in spite of, I'm on Shane Book's side, I, you know, in my mind, I'm not ever going to say, oh, his brother was right to treat him the way he treated him. But I think it behooves you as a writer to provide at least some ammunition for Paul's point of view. That yes, like, yeah, yeah, maybe this was, this guy's life was just too much for him to handle. He, 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 as an introvert, as a guy who never wanted to be famous, never wanted to be the head of a major corporation, watching your best friend ride that thing like a rocket, you go, you know what? You ride the rocket. I'm going to go I'm going to go off in the woods and do my own thing. And you know, that's not you can disagree with it. You can think he's being a bad friend. You can do any other, you know, or bad <laughs> sister, but you can also go, yeah, you know, well, he did what he had to do for himself and that's the, you know, yes. that's where. Anyway, I th- I I hope that addresses you know, without oh, you absolutely. know, like I said, I have no I bear Peter no ill will and I don't um and can't Kevin certainly doesn't bear Peter any ill will. It's just there is something about his his attitude and his public statements that is funny and is good, really fun to use in a comic book. Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I mean, Josh and I we, we talked about this, and and it's also a theme in the in, in drawing blood that we notice. I mean, there is immense pressure. I mean, if you have a million dollar idea. Um, there's that pressure to get that other idea done, you know. And as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, there's a joke about that in the comic book. Uh, you know, like, okay, here's a way to gather your debt. Come up with another million dollar idea. And of course, you know, with with those two, we could say Shane and Paul, or mm-hmm. Devil's Advocate, say we could say Kevin and Pete. They kind of responded to that pressure in different ways, you mm-hmm. know. And and I think very it's so... very different ways. Right, right. But and either way, it's still pressure. And I, when Kevin and I, we. We had a marathon weekend where I took the train down to San Diego and was at his house where we knocked out the plot and all of the background for the ragdolls. And I think I said to him early on uh, in that process, I said, look, I get you and I are coming at this from completely different life experiences and angles. And I get that on a certain level. I'm asking George Lucas to do The Phantom Menace with all of the danger that entails. 
Now, The Phantom Menace is a direct sequel, so it's, but I, I, I could say I'm asking you to make Willow. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, okay, make come up with another idea that's kind of like Star Wars, that you'll be a complete loser and failure if it's not as popular as Star Wars in the eyes of some people, possibly in your own eyes. Like, I get it. Yeah. That's, you know, and when you remember the Ninja Turtles were a joke idea scribbled on a napkin for the first time, to then go and say, okay, we're going to honor that, but create a different version of that. And we're very careful. Uh, one of the other ways, I think the biggest way we tried to get around the autobiography, excuse me, the autobiography issue is that the ragdolls take place in a universe with the turtles, with Kevin, with me even. I'm in one panel in Drawing Blood, as is Ben, as is Courtney, Kevin's wife. We thought it would be funny and it would distract. In the first Kickstarter, we pretended that that Bookman was a real person. I still operate a Shane Bookman Twitter and Instagram account because we think it's fun. Oh, that was you. Yeah, that's me. Okay. I, that, 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 that's, that's always me. Um, and, I love that. And, you know, partially because it's fun, partially because it's a good joke, there are absolutely people who sort of squinted at me and went, was there like a Ragdolls? Was that on – was that on – on Nickelodeon in the mid nineties, like that's big. And I think in their minds, they're like conflating the Ninja Turtles and the Powerpuff Girls. Like they're, they're sort of putting it together and going, I, that sounds a little familiar, I think. Uh, and people asked us if he was real with a straight face, if he was a real person. I'd steer into that skit and be like, oh yeah. And we're, yeah. And we're like, you know, someone, I think one of the, the first time I answered that question, someone asked it as an either or. And I answered yes. <laughs> said, "Did you make up Shane Bookman, or is he a real person?" And I said, "Yes, yes, yes, yes. That, that is that is correct. That is the correct answer." But partially, that's because we just felt like, and I see this in a lot of things like that, where if everything is an analog for something else, you well, what ha- society exists in a world where the real things happened. And you have to sort of, if you're removing one of those real things, if we're removing the Ninja Turtles as a phenomenon, then how did the ragdolls become popular? Why was it embraced? You know what I mean? Like you you sort of have to, and I didn't want to do that one for one thing. I thought it was much better if you go, okay, the Ninja Turtles inspired a million imitators. Uh, and people in, you know, pastiches, parodies, whatever. Here's a guy doing something very similar inspired by Peter and Kevin. And if you look at the, on the Kickstarter version, which we did very much as an in-universe prop for the first issue of the Ragdolls, there's a special thanks on the inside front cover, and it includes Kevin Pete. Yeah. You know, it's Kevin and Pete and Stan Sakai and... Uh, Jack Kirby and Frank and Miller. Jack Kirby and and Frank Miller, and it's all the you know it's the people that inspired the Ninja Turtles, but also the people that inspired and but also the people that inspired quote unquote Shane and Paul. So we just felt like that was a much better. It's like in one of the first versions of it, I think the Shane Bookman character was named Kirby Miller or something like that, and I remember saying to Kevin. We're going to want this to take place in the real world of comic books. And if you have a character named Kirby Miller, that's a great tip of the hat to 
comic book creators we admire, but then you can't have Frank Miller and Jack Kirby be topics of conversation, be characters. You know, we can't do the scene of young Shane Bookman. If he's Kirby Miller, we can't do the scene of him meeting Jack Kirby at a con in the 70s or in the 80s. Right. You know what I mean? And Jack being, Jack being kind to him because he likes the sketches of the... We can't have him sitting in a bar getting into an argument with Frank Miller. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not, not that that's the most common interaction with Frank Miller. It just uh, came out that way. But, uh, you know what I mean? So we thought it was... I thought it was better. It's like, no, no, no. This is a world in which comic books as we know them exist. Frank Forrest created the Night Avenger. The Night Avenger is a little bit like the spirit... Mm -hmm. He's a little bit like Batman, but we have the spirit and we have Batman. Yeah. You know what I mean? We, well, like we're, we're not replacing. We can still have Will Eisner and Bob Kane and Bill Finger in the comic book. And it's more, to me, it's more yeah, interesting. And it adds to the mystique of, of the book, you know, what, what's real, yeah. what's, what's not, yeah. you know, and what's to me yeah. draws me in even more. Pardon the pun there. Yeah. And well, I think I do. I think that the more it takes place in a real world and the more that especially with comic books and comic book fans, I said to him, I think at the beginning, you know, it's like, it would be too sad if we can't ever write a scene where Shane and Paul are talking about Jack Kirby and Frank Miller. And that, that scene is in the, in the, there is a scene about that in the, talking about those influences on the ragdolls as well. Wow. And uh, so it allows us to be fanboys. I'll tell you, this is a secret. I'll tell you, there's one, uh, scene that we haven't written into it yet, which I can't wait to find a place for. But the first version of the Ragdolls, up until a minute before we started the project, they were reptiles. Oh, wow. They, oh, cool. were, sex they were sexy green lizard ladies. <laughs> uh, they looked like sexy Gorns from Star Trek. <laughs> uh, and I'm with you. At the last minute, Kevin, and there are a hundred sketches of them when, from when Kevin started this project in 2005. Uh, that's how long ago he was working on it. And when we were just about to start, I had been thinking, eh, I'm not crazy about lizards, but we're not going to see a lot of them, so it's no big deal. At this time, we were never thinking about doing the standalone comic or anything like that. We just needed them so that when people talked about what he was famous for, we would know what that was. Well, when we got closer, Kevin called me up and he's like, yeah, I'm feeling a little edgy about the reptiles. I'm feeling like, one, they're green and they're reptiles, which is kind of close to the turtles, and it might be seen as too close. And two, they're not cute and cuddly in a way that turtles are. And we immediately, like... I think he said cats first, but I was immediately thinking of cats because I have three cats. <laughs> the ragdolls are literally based on my three cats uh, visually um, and personality-wise a little bit. But when we decided, okay, we're going to go with cats, and I looked up cat, uh, I looked up cat breeds starting with R and found ragdolls. And I went, ah, ragdolls is kind of cool and kind of cute. And even though of the three of them, Really, Miyazaki's the only one that even remotely looks like a ragdoll cat. <laughs> uh, Tezuka is very clearly a striped American tabby of some kind. And, uh, wow, I almost called Otomo by the name of my black cat, Mackie. Otomo is <laughs> just a black cat. Definitely, ragdolls don't come in that color. That's fine. 
Uh, we just needed a name that you know, we could use across the board for them, and we wanted to keep the uh, alliteration. But uh, there's a scene that uh, there's a flashback scene I want to do where Shane Bookman is about to launch the Ragdolls first issue, and he goes to Kevin a Kevin Eastman signing at a con and shows him the sketches. And this is funny because Kevin is the nicest most even-tempered guy in the world, and Kevin grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, if you f publish these green lizards, I will sue you to in oblivion, and I will come to your house, rip <laughs> wow. your head off, and, you know, like, it just goes out of control. And in the narration, Shane says, he saved my life. Reptiles wouldn't have sold. Everybody loves cats. Like, I, you know, like, <laughs> it totally, this seems like a terrible thing, but at the time... And I was pretty upset at the time that my hero treated me like this. But really, <laughs> no one would care about the radically rearranged Ronin reptiles. Ragdolls. Oh. Everybody loves ragdolls. That is a scene we haven't put in yet. I haven't found a spot for it. But I am really looking forward to writing that scene. Oh, that's amazing. I think that's okay. going to be a hilarious moment. Because uh, uh, partially, And again, partially that just came out of Kevin showing me the sketches, and we have so many sketches. He, I should say, he has so many sketches for it, for that part of the series. And I'm like, these are so good. It's a shame no one will ever see them. I was like, I have a way we can maybe work the sketches in. And he's, of course, totally on board with portraying, with, with portraying himself as a person he absolutely is not <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I thought I that it. would be very, very funny to have uh, Kevin Eastman have a full-on meltdown on him about the rag, the reptile being <laughs> actionable and being a ripoff. And again, to me, it addresses the it addresses the inside joke of, of course, they're of course they're the Ninja Turtles in some way. But and I think it's worth talking about that too. That I reread all of the like the first twenty issues of the Ninja Turtles before we did this, and I think it helps. Uh, I'm the wrong age to be a rabid Ninja Turtles fan. I read the first issue when it came out, and I loved it, and I remember literally saying to someone, I was probably 20 at the time, this is a really smart, funny, well-drawn satire of Frank Miller, and it's got some Jack Kirby in there, but it's really a lot of Frank Miller and a little bit of, you know, the Dave Sim animal thing and all that. But my feeling about it was this will never take off because it's too inside. It's such a comic book for comic book people. What I didn't realize, and it's just like Bugs Bunny cartoons from the 40s, you don't need to understand 1940s politics, which Bugs Bunny is constantly referencing, to think those cartoons are funny because that's not all that's in them. Turtles doing martial arts is funny even if you've never seen a Bruce Lee movie in your life, even if you are unfamiliar with Frank Miller's Ronin, the teenage mutant part is funny, even if you've never read a Chris Claremont comic in your life, even if you never found the new mutants ridiculous in the 80s or loved them. <laughs> like the satire of all that, of the Teen Titans, of all that stuff, you don't need to know any of it for the comic to be fun. And that's what I missed. And I'm not, I'm way too old for the cartoons. You know what I mean? Like when they were coming out, I was just 
I was in college. I was getting a life started. I wasn't watching Saturday morning cartoons. I wasn't watching those Saturday morning cartoons. I saw the first movie when it came out. I found it very entertaining. But it's like I appreciated it as a fan of the black and white comics from the 80s. Uh, which is still my favorite, will yeah. always be my favorite version of the Ninja Turtles. I've watched some of the recent series. I love. I thought the CGI series, the recent one, was beautiful, and I loved the the episode Kevin wrote was amazing. But all that to say, I don't approach it. I think if I was a rabid, has the cereal box, has a room full of the toys, fan of the Ninja Turtles, I don't think the Ragdolls would have come out as well. Because I would have been too invested in recreating that rather than creating something new. Certainly, we make a thousand tips of the hat in the direction of the Ninja Turtles. But, like, there's no ver their version of Splinter. Like, if I was doing it slavishly as a fan, it would have been another kind of, it would have been a cockroach. It would have been a, another New York City pest in ours it's an elderly japanese woman because i think that's more interesting and had i been created in 1991 i probably would have gone you know they do a bunch of martial arts they should be raised by an elderly japanese couple that'd be nice and and again you talk about what i say about all of the everything becomes autobiography my favorite sushi restaurant in los angeles is called ten masa Everyone who works there is a member of the same extended family. They have a lot of children who are the waiters and waitresses. Uh, Machiko and Tiger are absolutely based on the mom and pop that run that sushi restaurant. Cool. Oh, wow. That's they cool. look like them. They talk a little bit like them. What's absolutely weird to me, I mean, I guess there maybe are only so many ways to caricature an elderly, stern Japanese man with short hair, but if Tiger does not look like Mr. Masa and I have never shown Troy Little a picture <laughs> never shown Troy Little a picture of that guy I don't have a picture of that guy but he really looks like him and that blows my mind and, you gotta show it to him and uh, yeah I, I, haven't even, I haven't even been there in a while but it's just one of those funny things where you know in Tiger Sushi my favorite Bond movie is You Only Live Twice and my favorite character in You Only Live Twice is Tiger Tanaka my first stripey cat was named Tiger Tanaka. So all of that goes into it. But you know what I mean? It's My point is that I don't think someone who was a giant Ninja Turtles fan, obsessed with it, would have made their mentor human. Yeah, I think they would have been looking for a way to do something like Splinter. Whereas I was like, yeah, that's, that's not a detail that's important to me as a storyteller. Right, yeah. That's getting that specific note wasn't that interesting right and and you're exactly right i think if you were even subconsciously you would be putting things in there you know because of your own personal bias and and, and the designer the designer drug rambo that's just which is you know what uh, overdog is making like you know shredder's not a drug dealer but i was in new york in the 1980s drugs were an enormous problem they were everywhere uh crack was coming in uh, the Rambo movies were popular. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, what if you had sort of like a super cocaine that you feel invincible? What would you what would you have called that in 1991? You would have absolutely called it Rambo. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that has no, there's no analog for that in 
the Ninja Turtles. That's just me going, okay, I'm creating a comic book in 1991 from whole cloth. I'm somewhat influenced by the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Um, you know, and by the Marvel Universe, I mean, I love Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA and all that mythology. So, of course, Paul Steranko, again, so subtle with the character names, <laughs> uh, and the organization Draw and their enemy Flush. I have a there's a joke about Flush that I wasn't able to sneak in. So the 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 our, the Ragdoll's universe version of Hydra is named Flush because the good guys are draw, and in poker a flush beats a draw. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but there's a scene where the Ragdolls or or Steranko is talking to the leader of Flush, and he's like, "Yeah, you know that's not the only thing Flush means. <laughs> like you really you really." It's a really kind of humiliating name for your world domination <laughs> organization that you gave yourself. It's like, no, 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 flush, it beats a draw in poker. Yeah, but that's more not to what it. people think of. <laughs> that's really not the first thing people think of when they hear flush. <laughs> no. And he's, you know, German or Russian. He's not a native English speaker, so he wasn't aware of that. Uh, so it's just kind of a funny gag. Um, but yeah, so, you know, again, my love of S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA and Kevin's too, I would say, is why that's the origin story that they were being operated on in a shield, essentially a shield lab. Uh, there again, there's nothing like that in the Ninja Turtles origin. Right. Um, but it's, you know, and the one joke we did do is because the Ninja Turtles origin is a joke on the Daredevil's origin. I said, well, let's turn, let's crank that to eleven, and the Ragdoll's origin is every Marvel hero origin at once. <laughs> This is why they run through in this they're being given an experimental drug they run through the gamma ray room the cosmic ray room and the genetic mutagen room on their way out the door <laughs> so they're essentially hulk fantastic four x-men <laughs> you know like they have all of the origins because uh, i thought that was a a good way to honor that joke in uh in the turtles. Well, it's, anyway. it's such a clever book and, and the comedy is, is such a big part of that too. And, and yeah. just, I mean, it's not autobiographical, but it's, it is, you know, and you've written about people, you know, yet you're not so mm -hmm. turtles biased to where you can only see green. And I think all those, those blends of variations have created this book that is just truly, as Josh said in the last episode, a creator's book. I mean, it, I, I absolutely love it, and, and and it seems like volume two right now on Kickstarter is killing it. It's doing pretty good. We're at, I'm looking at the page right, you know, I have the page open and I'm refreshing it maybe every two minutes. Uh, <laughs> I, I have it during this whole conversation, but I do have it open. We're at $34,137, which is 45% funded wow. of the initial goal, which is 75000 Now we're... That's for volume two, which is four issues of Drawing Blood. The title of the first, we didn't really have a subtitle until we went to press on the first mm -hmm. volume, and that ended up being called Spilled Ink, reference to Spilled Blood and all that. And then the mm -hmm. second arc is going to be called Rough Layouts. Ooh. Uh, don't know what the third volume is going to be called, but the, that's basically. The three volumes are the first season of a TV show, essentially. And they wrap up some of the storylines that you've seen so far. Uh, and there's sort of a there's a there's a thing that explains the whole book that you won't really see until the twelfth, maybe the last four pages of the twelfth issue. Um, but you'll Ooh. you'll 
someone paying a lot of attention could probably figure out what that reveal is going to be, but uh, I'm, it, and it blows my mind that it's still, you know, a minimum of a year away before we would even get to that, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's there in front of you if you want to see it. And uh, so that's, if we get to 75,000, we'll get the four issue trade of Drawing Blood 2. And then 100,000, uh, Troy came to us independently. We were thinking about what are we going to do next with the ragdolls. And uh, <laughs> Troy said, uh, working from Kevin's layouts is so different from my style that it will kill me if I have to do it again. <laughs> Which I thought was really funny and really honest of him. And that, they're just very different artists. Kevin's level of detail, even in his quote-unquote roughs, is pretty... When he sends me roughs, I'm like, or we could just publish this. Like, how do you, do you really, like this is friggin' gorgeous. Do we really need to do more to this? He's like, yes, David, we need to do more to it. But um, so he suggested, and this is sort of in keeping with everything we want to do with the ragdolls. The ragdolls are sort of a inside joke about the history of comic books in their own way. And they let us comment on the whole history of the Turtles franchise the whole history of every franchise that's existed since the 90s. So Troy's idea was, I can, if I do a book in my own style, which is a much more cartoony, animated show-looking style, what if we do the comic book that would be released as the companion to the TV show? In our, oh, cool. in our universe, Nickelodeon is called Kittyscope. So it's like, this is the Kitty Scope branded... This is uh, the Archie Turtles. The Ragdolls. <laughs> this is the Ragdolls Adventures. But you know how like, Batman Adventures is the yeah. comic yeah. book that looks like Batman the Animated Series? This is this is Ragdolls Tiny Toon Adventures, basically. Oh, I love that. That is so, so cool. It's a two-part, 40-page story. Uh, Troy wrote the outline, and uh, we have code... He's, we have story credit. He has story credit on it completely, and I have script credit uh, shared with him because he did a very – I said, my challenge to you is that he had a story idea, and I said, great, write a detailed outline for me, and we'll share writing credit, and I'll, uh, I'll come in and do the dialogue. And uh, Troy, I ch changed very little in his outline, um, and he – I don't think he's gotten started on it yet. We just saw his pages for Drawing Blood, the first hallucination scene in Drawing Blood Volume 2. He just knocked out a couple of days ago, and it looks awesome. Uh, he's going for an even more exaggerated, even more drug-fueled, cartoony style uh, within Drawing Blood. The standalone book will look like Tiny Dune Adventures, will look like, you know, Ragdolls Animated. Um, but yeah, that's called... I think that's called uh, the Ragdoll's Adventure series, and uh, he's got. It's a two-part story. I think it'll be published in one forty-page comic. And if we get to a hundred thousand dollars, that's a free prize added to everyone's volume two package. And then Kevin's been doing sketches of the Ragdolls for the last three, four years as we develop this. And he's put together a book, and he's been careful all along to sign his drawings as either Shane or Paul Bookman. Mostly as Shane. Shane Bookman's style is his style. We like to think that 
in a way, uh, the ragdolls as we see them in the in the series is the Shane and Paul working together style. But the Eastman style is the Shane alone style. So there's like at least a 40-page book of original Kevin Eastman sketches from the development of the characters. And not just the ragdolls, also the background characters in the book, uh, Overdog and the dogs and Draw and Flush and the Draw agents costumes and all that. So that kicks in at $125,000. And that's a that's a pretty nice, those are two nice free bonuses. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we have we have high hopes. I mean, the, the people, to, to be absolutely honest, when we did the Kickstarter last time, I went, look, your fan base is what it is, and they like what they like. Not to say they don't like comics that are nothing like the Ninja Turtles, but selling them our midlife comedy drama that is not about crime fighting. It is, there is no martial arts in it uh there's no funny well there are some funny talking animals in it in the hallucination scenes but i said this is not the easiest sell in the world in that sense you know right. uh it's like basically saying i'm gonna sell the bugs bunny fans a comic book in which chuck jones is a middle-aged alcoholic who thinks his life is over and useless they're gonna love it you know, like, no, actually, the two things are so completely unrelated from one another. They're not going to love that at all. Even if Bugs Bunny shows up every 10 pages and punches them in the face, that's still a pretty tough sell to that audience. So when we were developing the first Kickstarter, I said it might be smart to do the rat dolls, to do it for real, to make it the stretch goal, because honestly, that's what your fans really want from you and from us is the ragdolls. The fact that they're part of this narrative is great, but I think it's the, the sales numbers are public, so it's not like I'm telling stories out of school. When we released issue one of Drawing Blood and issue and the standalone ragdolls origin issue to the public in May, you know, in comic book stores, in previews magazine, all that, ragdolls outsold Drawing Blood three or four to one. Wow, really? Whoa. And drawing blood, drawing blood sales for an independent comic with no previously established IP, with no publishing company that was famous, it did fine. It did great. But Ragdolls did four times, three to four times better. And I knew that. Now, what I'm hoping is that people who develop the rag, who enjoy the Ragdolls, who bought it on the newsstand because they liked the cover and they went, oh, Kevin Eastman creating funny animals fighting crime again. That, that looks great. Mm. I'm hoping that everyone over the age of 17 who read Ragdolls discovers and finds their way back to drawing play. Wow. That, that's has, so interesting to me. Yeah. And, has, and has their mind blown that it's part of this other, this whole other narrative uh, that is a completely different thing. Right, yeah. And I think it's interesting that, you know, here we are, we grew up on the cartoon, right. um, but yet the cartoon in a, some this long, strange journey of, of adulthood has led us in a roundabout way to the comic books. You know, Josh right. and I have found the comic books later, and now we are far more drawn to the comic books. And, and nothing against the cartoon. We'll always have that love for it. But mm. 
So I immediately just wanted to know, as a 33-year-old adult, the backstory behind it, the story behind the story. That's right. why I was drawn to Drawing Blood. But wow, that blows my mind. I guess a, a, lot, a lot of other people who maybe don't know the backstory or don't care right. to know the backstory are drawn to the ragdolls. And I, that's such an ingenious idea. Uh, if you're just if you're not familiar with if you're not familiar with the genesis of the whole project and drawing blood is the first I mean and look the four to one thing remember that has nothing to do with people walking into comic book stores and making a choice to a certain degree those numbers reflect what comic book stores ordered uh, okay you know what I mean yeah so like that also means that three out of you know by a by a factor of three to one, comic book store owners went, you know, I'll order this thing. I won't order this other thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because that's how comic books work. I mean, people walk in off the street and buy them, but the sales are to the comic book store. The sales that the industry tracks, because the comic book store is stuck with those comics. Right. When you don't buy them, they, you know, they put a higher price on them, they stick or they put a lower price on them and stick them in a box and say 25 cents. But uh, it means that comic book retailers made that determination, same determination that I guessed, that there would be it would be easier to sell cats, funny cats fighting crime, than mopey guy with mustache. <laughs> <You know? laughs> mopey guy with a mustache has feels is not you know the greatest pitch anyone has ever had. Uh, I think the comic is great. I think it's some of the best work I've ever done in my life, and I'm intensely proud of it. I'm also intensely proud of the ragdolls, but Drawing Blood is a richer, more emotional work. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no arguing that point. It's, you know, clearly it's the deeper thing. Um, but I, again, it doesn't mean I don't get why it's easier to sell Batman than... Here's Bill Finger sitting in his apartment, staring out into space, wondering what went wrong with his yeah. life. You know what? Like, it's very, it's just a very different. You know, yeah, no, that, no, thanks. I'll just read Batman. You, you can keep yeah. the builder is sad that it didn't work out for him. He didn't make enough money. You know, I mean, like, yeah, you can. We get to make money too. You know, you, you sell yeah. the rag dolls, you make money, but you, you can get the story behind it. Exactly. And again, just like the thing I said about you gotta love it. It's not like we're going through the motions of doing the ragdolls while rolling oh, our, yeah. while rolling our eyes. We love the and the more when it started out, it was literally because a plot it's a plot device. We needed something to be the thing he created. But it's great. But <laughs> you know, like the minute you start working on it, you want it to be as good as anything else you've ever done. You can't just dash it off. Oh yeah. And the more we worked on it, the more it became, hey, this is this is actually pretty good. And we were talking about it, and I said, I drawing blood is, you know, is a story and it's got a beginning and middle, and I think there's even an end to it someday. I was like, I can write three hundred issues of the ragdolls. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't I don't see any reason to stop ever doing the ragdolls. Uh so there will be more stuff with ragdolls, a lot more stuff with ragdolls. And I think it's worth saying as an aside. Because it's set in the world of comic book creators, there are uh, in television the the expression is backdoor pilot. You know what a backdoor pilot is? It's when in the course of a TV series you introduce a character or a set of characters that are gonna get their own show someday. There was a law show called The Practice, and they introduced James Spader and William Shatner 
as a rival law firm. And they were so great and so popular. They went, ah, let's give these guys their own show. They're so great. Uh, which was called... Boston Legal. Uh, Boston Legal, yes. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily a backdoor pilot because I don't think they knew they were going that way. But I can tell you, you know, Frank Forrest's Night Avenger, I have every intention of writing a Night Avenger. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that we did do in, it was published to the public in issue three or two of Drawing Blood. We did a Sunday comic strip for Night Avenger uh, that Dave Acosta drew. And I want Dave to do the Night Avenger comic when we have a time. And there's also, in the fourth issue, he meets a young woman named Amanda Cabalina, who's based on a bunch of comic book readers. Oh, yeah, GTF, GTFO, GTFO girl. Yeah. girl. There will absolutely be GTFO girl comics. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, that's something where, as much as I have a high opinion of myself as a comic book writer, I do not want to write that comic. That is not for me to write. That is explicitly for a woman possibly, you know, hopefully younger than 53 or 56 year old woman. Uh, and it's funny, I can write Betty Page because I know from long experience, research, whatever, I know what the mind and the speech patterns and the, I know what a 27 year old girl in 1952 is like. I don't really know what an 18 year old girl in 2019 is like as well. As I know. You know what I mean? It's just, the time has not existed for me to get to know that. You know what I mean? In five years, I might be able to write a period thing about what a 20-year-old girl in 2015 was like. But I want GTFO girls to be something very in the now, something very current. And I feel ill-equipped for that. And I've got plenty of comic books right, right, right now. So I've talked to some of my comic creator friends who are young women about taking her on and I've talked to some young women to draw it and we will be seeing some of that hopefully within the next year. Oh, so cool. But yeah, part of the whole thing is like every time someone mentions a comic book in drawing blood, I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not just it's not just drawing blood on the ragdolls. We got a whole universe. And you know, if you think about Night Avenger, we can cover the entire history of superhero comics. And particularly the Dark Knight, the Spirit, the Shadow, all of that kind of stuff in the spectrum of Night Avenger. You know, uh, uh, Dave Acosta and I have talked about maybe doing for the Kickstarter a, uh, not for this Kickstarter, but down the road, we really want to do the 1989 Marvel Comics adaptation of the Tim Burton Night Avenger movie. Oh, that'd be, you know, that'd be great. That. <laughs> do the, do the, edgy, the edgy, gritty, late 80s Night Avenger. Do the goofy 1960s Adam West Night Avenger. Like, do all of that kind of, those kind of jokes. Get different cars. With that yeah, because it's just, it's totally, it's totally worth it to do that. It's totally fun and ridiculous to do all of that. Well, you but know, anyway, if, those are our future plans. If not, if none of that works out, like if there is no Night Avenger or GTFO Girl comic books, you've got my money. If you ever want to do a Bill Finger being sad comic book, I, would, <laughs> I no joking around here. I would totally love to see a comic book of Bill Finger just wondering where it all went wrong. 
That's funny. I mean, I you know, to a degree, we're, I feel like we're doing that in Drawing Blood. You know yeah, I mean? exactly, yeah. That's, or Chuck Jones that, with Bugs Bunny, yeah. You know. that, yes, the gritty Chuck Jones thing is a funny idea to do someday, but I don't know that Warner Brothers would ever give me the, the space to do that. And I will say, just to tie it all back to where we started from, the greatest thing, the luckiest thing about my career in comic books is Dynamite, for whatever reason, has complete faith in me and absolutely, I have complete fr creative freedom in all of my comics for Dynamite. And Kevin, absolutely the same. And that's the, you know, they let me do some pretty crazy stuff with their characters. El Elvira Cassandra Peterson reads every script and approves them. And thank God she has approved every script. She, uh, I love that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> she, she's wonderful. She suggests about two different jokes per issue. Where she says, here's an alternative if you want to try this. But <laughs> it, it's never, I hate this, it's got to go. Um, and I even was though. I ask you if she, told, if she ever told you Elvira wouldn't say that. Never. Never. She, wow. she has come up with alternatives for jokes. And even the last one that she suggested, <laughs> the, the emotional climax of issue eight, which is literally the emotional climax of the first eight issues. Uh, it's not really a spoiler to say that Elvira says, I'm free. She says, I'm something you'll never be. I'm free. Yeah. Uh, and it's a serious emotional moment. It's one of the few in the comic. And she wrote me a variation of, uh, I'm cheap, but I'm also free or something like that, making a, <laughs> a good, a good, a pretty good cheesy sex joke out of it. But under that, she wrote, if what you're going for is a serious moment here, I totally understand and forget I said anything. <laughs> and i did you know and i wrote her back and i said no you judged i said believe me i considered doing a variation of the joke you suggested but i felt like it was more important in this one moment in the entire eight issues that she say something serious to the villain you know that she express wow. something and she was like nope totally get it that's why i said what i said but like if you're going for the cheap joke here's the obvious cheap joke um but she's deaf i've used her joke and there was there was one panel I can think of, it's so funny, where I just didn't have a good quip and I didn't supply one. I, I just, I had Elvira say something fairly nondescript and I said, she's going to have something for this. I bet anything she's going to have for something for this. And the next email I got was, hey, David, when she's just walking away from Vlad the Impaler in issue three, she should say, and I was like, there it is. <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> and I didn't, I had not known. I hadn't done enough of my homework. She has been on RuPaul's uh, Drag Race a lot. Oh, and okay. is her walking away from a dangerous situation. And I did, that's the scene I didn't have a line for. And she said, uh, I should say, as my friend RuPaul would say, I'll just sashay away. And I went, there it is. That's, I, just need, <laughs> there it is. I just need something. I needed something better than, you know, okay, walking away. Like, it was something just not, it would have worked just fine in any other comic. But in Elvira, I, uh, there's pressure to be funny pretty much every panel, if not every right. two panels. Yeah. Uh, and it just wasn't, in, it wasn't an interesting enough line. It was too generic. And that was the one time I was like, she'll bail me out. She'll, <laughs> she'll, she'll notice that this moment is an unspectacular, unfunny moment, and she will come up with something for it. And <laughs> she did not spot the, the, the bat. It was literally like I handed her a one of these, you know, 
one of those things is like ten things in this picture are wrong. Spot them. You know, <laughs> it's like one line in this twenty-page comic book is lame. Find it. And she's like, yep, you found the lame they one. Both knew which one. <laughs> yeah, no, she totally, she totally knew the lame line. Anyway, well, thank you so much for. Gosh, this has been so fascinating. I'd love thank to talk with you again uh, about Drawn sure. Blood one day. Oh, and absolutely. Elvira and comics in general. I just love to talk to you. Well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> It is a, it is a, they're topics I'm passionate about and care about, so. Well, it definitely shows. I'm always happy to talk, and uh, I know you're going to be, I think you're going to be putting this up before August 31st, so. Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Uh, the way we do it is, well, we record one Saturday, and it's out by the next Saturday, so this one should be edited and, and up and going by the 10th. Great, so that'll be 10 days into the campaign. People should go to drawingbloodcomic.com and they'll see the Kickstarter for Volume 2. And if you're new to the project, uh, there are a couple of levels where you can get Volume 1 and Volume 2 together if you donate to the project. So you can catch up. Good deal. <laughs> it, is, it is possible to catch up. We're trying to, the comic also will be, Volume 1 will be on Comixology by the end of August, but I don't know if how much of it will be on. And the fourth issue of Drawing Blood comes out August, uh, the last Wednesday of August. I don't know which one that is. About, I think it's like the 28th. It's like two or three days before the Kickstarter ends. Yes, that's like the 28th. Wednesday the yeah, 28th. 28th. Great. Great. All right. Well, David, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it was man. my pleasure. Oh, it was my wonderful. Pleasure, guys. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. I, I know somebody else has mentioned it, and I can't remember who it was, but I completely agree that Everyone who's associated with Drawing Blood and, and of course, Turtles that we've met through this podcast over the years is so easy going and down to earth. Just regular people that are just really smart and happen to just have an awesome idea. It's just like you're another example. All I can thank you and all I can say about that is that's all Kevin. The organization, you know, he's, he's the leader. He created all of this stuff and uh, – you know, you draw like-minded people to you. None of us want to yeah. work with. None of us want to work with people who are difficult to work with. Uh, life is too short. There, mm -hmm. I've said this in Holly for thirty-two years. There are enough talented people who are good human beings and pleasant to work with that you never have to work with them just because they're talented. Oh. They are not. They are not the only choice. I love that. <laughs> you can just. You can choose. You know. Yeah. Sometimes you're ending up with working for a little less money. Sometimes you're ending up with not the the most famous person that you could work with, but uh, Kevin is a, a great human being. We've become closest to friends, which is, you know, of all of the things that have come out of this, that's the best part, yeah. is I have a new, a new best buddy, and uh, we make this thing together that we love, that we feel strongly about, and the audience has responded to it and uh it just it couldn't be a it couldn't be a better experience uh, that's that's absolutely fantastic man well david thank you again uh best wishes thank for you. drawing blood uh, volume two guys go check it out on kickstarter we've backed it we're so excited to share more <laughs> about it so excited to talk more about it and uh we'll be talking to you soon david thank you so Great. much thank you thank you david Alright guys, well, like I said, check out Drawing Blood Volume 2. It is on Kickstarter right now, and hopefully as you're hearing this, it's August 10th, 
and you have plenty of time to back this project. So um, if you want to send us an email about anything that's been said about Drawing Blood, about the turtles, our email address is turtleflakespodcast at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at turtleflakes, and we do have a Facebook group page at facebook.com slash groups slash turtleflakes. We have a TurtleCom hotline. Thank you so much for those who have called. It is 865-309-4875. And last but not least, Josh, would you like to talk about your blog real quick? Uh, yeah, I write for uh, the Turtle Tracks blog. It's a website where you can find my musings on pop culture in general. Um, I'm taking a bit of a hiatus right now, just uh, recharging my batteries. Uh, so there's also a gaming channel I have on YouTube called Turtle Tracks Games. Um, not really doing a lot of uploading or writing right now. Um, just uh, getting some perspective right now and figuring out what's going on next. But you can definitely find my movie reviews, tour reviews, uh, pop culture news, things of that nature. Uh, views on the film industry and comic book industry. And uh, you can watch me playing video games pretty okay on Turtle Tracks games on YouTube. Awesome, man. Well, the question we all want to know, Hosehead, or at least I always want to know this, is what type of pizza are we going to have to close down another totally tubular episode of Turtle Flakes? Man, you know, um, I haven't eaten today yet, so... Oh, bless your heart. I give it what we have. I just boost from me. I don't care. <laughs> just eat everything pizza, man. Come on. All right. Well, you know what? We'll make it the works. You know, uh, what do they call that? I guess it's just Supreme the works. Pizza? Supreme pizza. Thank you. There you go. Thinking of Jersey hoagies, the works, you know? Yeah, I'll but, take uh, the hoagies. Man, I'm free. I don't care. I will yeah. take it right now. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us, for going right on, I think... 17th or 16th will be our six-year anniversary. Thank you for everything, guys. And thank you for the wonderful feedback we received this week. So on behalf of Hosehead and myself, we wish you a good day. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy your family. Enjoy a mega slice of Supreme Pizza. Cowabunga, dudes. Cowabunga, everyone. Yeah, um, really quickly, if you don't mind, I'm looking at your IMDb page, and you look yeah. shockingly <laughs> like Gary Oldman. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, yeah. You, know, you look like... Uh, that's, I didn't always look like that. I mean, literally, at uh, at San Diego a year and a you know, two years ago, two San Diegos ago, Eastman walks up to me at one point and hands me a Gary Oldman Dark Knight Returns action figure and says, hey man, I found your action figure. I was just <laughs> going to say, I looked at your picture, I thought, that's that's Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. Commissioner Gordon. But yeah, I got a funny, I grew the mustache a few, and like I said, I can tell this story on the podcast, but I grew that mustache a few years ago, put up a picture on Instagram, and I had never heard this comparison before put up the picture on Instagram where I was being interviewed on camera by someone in a gray suit and a friend of mine commented Commissioner Gordon do you have a statement about the Batman (laughs) I was like holy I had not seen that before Uh, it really it's the mustache and the glasses really more than anything it's a compliment it is yeah he's not a bad looking guy I mean there are uh, you know I don't have the giant jawline of uh, comic book Jim Gordon from the 80s, 70s, but uh, Gary Oldman, yeah, that's that's sort of uh, that that kind of works. Yeah, I like it. Thanks. And by the way, we were recording, so oh, okay, there. great.
that's the intro to the show right there. There uh, you go. I, I vote that. Welcome day. to Turtle Flakes Podcast, where we're interviewing Commissioner James Gordon today. So. <laughs> Can't get it done without a bat, can you, Jim? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. well, you know, he cuts through the red tape for me. What can I tell you? That was great. Like, oh, it was fantastic. Was there was anything so... that that guy did not know? I mean, he no, he answered like six questions it... as he kept going. I know. Was, yeah, I think I think that was the least I ever talked on the show because he was just in, in the best way possible. He was just going and going. It's like I didn't I didn't want to interrupt. Me too. I know, and I felt like I, I caught myself doing that a couple times. Man, I, I, I'm like. Ooh. I really wanted to apologize to him for, I was going to say, like, if you subscribe to our show, please don't listen to last week's episode, because I got so much stuff about drawing blood wrong. <laughs> I, well, we, we both did. I was so happy, because, like, man, it get, how much insight do we have into that story now? I was like, I completely forgot about Wally Wood and Jim Steranko. Yeah. Jim Steranko well, we was instrumental with Spider-Man's development, and, um... I didn't even know Steranko was still alive. I didn't, I didn't know that either. I, I, um, there's so much that he referenced that I want to go back and check out now. Yeah, but I, I would totally, dude, I, if, uh, David Avalone, if you ever want to write that Bill Finger comic, I will buy it. it you know, I, <laughs> I would love to read about Bill Finger uh, realizing that he pretty much made Batman and didn't get any benefit from him because Bob Kane was kind of about it. Uh, but yeah, dude, David, thank you very much for being on the show. I would say that's one of the best interviews we have ever had, and I'm not blowing yeah. smoke. See, uh, David, I'm bad for this. Um, I I get so excited with my questions, <laughs> then I ask follow-up questions, and then 10, 15 minutes have gone by, and poor Josh hasn't gotten to ask a question. So I, I deliberately was like, dude, you take us in. You get us going. <laughs> I, I, I know the syndrome. I'm a talker myself. Oh, yes. This is going to be a very... You stay 45 minutes. Here we go. That's all three of us are talkers. <laughs> <here. laughs>